Uh, I, I don't know if I can look at that avatar this whole episode. You will not even believe how many I didn't put there. <laughs> Is this all from like a Tumblr or something? <laughs> you want to know? Yeah. You go to Google and you, you search, do an image search on bad tattoos. Isn't there like a, uh, a some kind of branded name for that meme? Probably. Yeah, I, I've seen some tumblers about it. Yeah. At, yeah. at least every word is spelled correctly in that one. I know. Yeah, the thing is, I, sometimes when people get the knuckle tattoos, they cut corners a little bit. You got to put that one in the show notes so people know what we're talking about. Oh, this uh, this image? Yes. Yeah, all right. In all its uh, puffy-lettered glory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like how the words are kind of like the the stitched shut mute mouth of this weird face made by this tattoo. There's so much to love about it. This is, appears to be, uh, it's an image of a, of a tattoo. Oh, is it a tattoo? I mean, this is really like a little miniature family of tattoos. No, 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 it's a unit. You can't, you can't separate the elements. Okay. That's true. That's true. Two giant oversized, uh, blue eyes, probably female eyes on the back of this neck. It looks like possibly a female neck. I'm not sure. With uh, with big eyebrows, and underneath it, uh, it says "real lies." Space, real eyes. New line, real lies. It's deep. <laughs> um, <laughs> Patrick Swayze as a uh, centaur. That's a good one. <laughs> no, that's good, Dad. What are you talking about? <laughs> Yeah, the, the fill-in work on that purple sky. Too cool for school. School is misspelled. Gotta be. It would be misspelled if it was correctly spelled. <laughs> no regrets. Um, some of these are really, really troubling. Oh, my God, an underarm tattoo. Those are the best <sighs> ones. You can hide those easily. Oh, it's a shark eating a stylized Japanese baby. <laughs> Don't skip ahead. We have other things to cover first. That's true. I'm trying to go easy on the follow-up. I don't like to, you know. You don't like to, you know what? You know. No, I don't know. You tell me. You're a little bit of a mood tonight. What's your for dinner? I skipped dinner. Yeah, really? Oh, I had Chinese delivery food, and it's weighing heavy on me. Yeah, I had to, I had like leftover delivery for lunch, and I think I ate too much of it. Not Chinese; it was Cuban. I think mm. I ate too much, and I just felt like dinner time came around. I just, I felt like I was still digesting lunch, so I couldn't, couldn't handle it. I didn't, I, I didn't put any follow-up. Uh, but I just would like to say thank you to uh, people who tutored at us. This sounds like the reception to our interstellar discussion. It seems like it was it was good. Todd liked it. Our interstellar support group slash discussion. Yeah, That's exactly. What it, was. it was an interstellar support group. I think, um, yeah, I mean, I really, I think I was very close to your point of view on that. And I still keep thinking about it. It's weird. I, I said this before about Pixar movies or, you know, kids' movies in general, but I, in some ways, like, the long-term... I've said this so many times. In some ways, I evaluate, like, the impact that a movie had on me by how much I think about it, like, that day after I leave the theater. But, like, also just movies that really, like, stick with... Interstellar's a movie like that. I'm still mad about it, but I still think about it. I saw La La Land. My wife and I went to see La La Land. And about halfway through, I turned to my wife and I said, uh, this is a really really weird movie and i was trying to articulate for like an hour afterward like what i thought was so weird about it there's a lot that's weird about it but man the music is in my head and now i'm just listening to an emma stone song on repeat which is not something i would have predicted a week ago 
But it's funny. funny. It's funny the ones that'll stick with you. I gotta wait for that one on video, because I've heard... Yeah, I don't blame you. ...mixed reviews about it. And it's not about uh, space, so, you know, apparently I only go to the theater for uh, animation, Star Wars, or sci-fi. Well, and, like, you, you mentioned this last week, but, I mean, it's almost like a meme, or, like, yeah, or not a meme, maybe, but where people are... It's so often now people say, oh, go, do me a favor, go, find this on the biggest screen you can, with the best sound system available. They don't sound like that when they say it. Sure they do. <laughs> what what, what uh, cartoon character is that? That's one of my guys from the internet voice. <laughs> no, it's, uh, I can't place it. Is it one of the Hanna-Barbera ones? No. It's a character I have previously portrayed. Um, I'm going to call him uh, Open open Letter Guy. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a slightly different guy. I know that guy. Alas. <laughs> <laughs> I have enjoyed your product for so many years and come to really respect the mm-hmm. level of care and customer service. They're not mad, alas. they're just disappointed. I'm very disappointed. <laughs> alas. <laughs> I shall no longer be able to use your product and will not recommend it to my friends, many of which I definitely have. <laughs> right, the, the idea of the people saying that you have to watch it on a big screen because I mean like sometimes that's valid like certain kinds of movies in fact the ones I'm most adamant about are the ones where there's probably not enough value to justify you seeing it on something other than a giant screen so it's like if you want to get if you want to extract any enjoyment from this please try I mean we discussed the last show like gravity is an example it's like gravity on your TV at home I mean it's not a bad movie it's alright it's fine but the value that's there to be had I think it, uh, most clearly comes through on a really, really big screen. And when you put it on a smaller screen, it loses almost all of that, and then you're left with just like a ho-hum movie. Yeah. No, I get that. I, I feel that way about uh, lots of things where, I mean, not to make it starkly economical, but just in terms of not just money but time, we got to pick our shots really carefully in terms of like what we choose to go see. Yeah, but not everyone has kids. No, I know. I know. It's a good thing. As uh, <laughs> as Brady calls them, human human children. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, but so anyway, thanks to everybody who um, wrote in about that. Um, I continue to be amazed that we don't get more angry uh, notes from people. I mean, they seem to be listening, unless they're running some kind of shell script to download the show. Someone is listening to it. I- I'm, I'm struck with, with how little like uh, terrible feedback we get. Maybe we get tons of terrible feedback, and it just goes through like the relay feedback form and doesn't get forwarded to either of us, and Mike just reads it. Oh, can you imagine having to do that? First, he's got it. We spoiled him on so many movies now and plus he's got to read our hate mail can you imagine that well i mean he might just auto delete it we don't know where that mail goes yeah if you're constantly sending feedback rest assured we're not seeing it yeah you can tweet at us i see people tweet at us be sure to like and subscribe (laughs) yeah right (laughs) tweet at us we'll see that this episode will come out uh when i can speak publicly about this uh i haven't tweeted in four days what is that is that what you're going to speak publicly about your tweet drought because Mm -hmm. Uh, stupid Max Temkin, our challenge for this podcast idea where we give each other a challenge each each week. Are you the master of your domain? Mm, I, I already posted the GIF. I'm out. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I I I objected strenuously to this challenge, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, I'm not allowed to tweet. We have to see who breaks first. Oh, that's easy. Come on, that'll be Max. Don't you think? Um, I I think uh, it should be a stalemate, and everyone will successfully not tweet because that's the easiest challenge ever. Yeah. It, it, Especially for all, you. You hardly tweet at all anyway. You tweet like once a week. 
Like that's you, not accurate. You probably delete a lot of jokes that you don't think are good enough. Every once in a while, you think of is one. That what I, is that what I probably do? You, that is what you probably do. That's what I probably do. Mm-hmm. No, no. I'll tell you the most difficult for me part for me is, uh, and this this sounds so stupid, and this does not sound like my public persona. The most difficult part for me is like I am. You're a star man, much like the David Bowie song. Whereas I am more of a thank you person. Like I will. I, I didn't even realize how often. I want to make a little quip back at somebody who's making a quip at me yeah, in a friendly yeah, yeah. way. But a lot of times it's just like, hey, thanks. That was really, that was great. Or thank mm-hmm. you for saying that. And like, I didn't even realize how much I do that. There's so many times I almost, uh, almost took myself out of the competition by responding to people. That, that was way harder than I expected. When I investigate somebody on Twitter, like when I find out what their deal is or whatever, and I look at their tweets, like there's, you can tell that those type of people, because sometimes you look at somebody's tweets and what I'm mostly looking for is what do you actually write? Like not a reply. Right. But what are you actually saying? And, and like for the frequency, like do you post, do you tweet once a day, once a week? Have you tweeted 700 times in the last five minutes? You know, kind of see what kind of tweeter they are. Uh, but if you go to the the view that includes the replies and you see some people are very conscientious repliers that like you, that you can't make any sense of their timeline when you show their replies because it's just reply after reply after reply with, you know, nice pleasantries like, oh, thanks for saying that. Thanks for, you know, like that's I think that's how most people use Twitter. That's too much replying. Way <laughs> too much. Yeah, that's I mean I, I, I you know uh, more power to them if they can pull that off but I feel like that's like a full time job it's like you know here's another one now here, here's a crazy one uh, I mentioned on that other program due by Friday that uh, my wife had gotten me a gift for my birthday which was she has meat delivered to me once a month and this shipment latest shipment of meat got real real screwed up and it took ten days to, to deliver. And uh, I it wasn't I wasn't even complaining. I was just mentioning how I do that thing sometimes where I text my wife when she's sitting next to me. I think I think if people are honest, they will admit they sometimes do this. If somebody is in the house, so my wife is in bed, I'm watching TV. We'll text each other. Well, well, well there's a difference in, in the house and next to you because I got a text from my wife uh, mere minutes before recording this, but she is upstairs and I am downstairs in the podcast. So it's more like an intercom chamber. in that case. Right, because, you know, she's not going to come back down, and she knows I'm all locked in here for the podcast. So that, I think, is reasonable. But sitting next to each other is starting to border on, All like, right. I, I, don't, I don't feel the need to respond to this, but I will. Mm-hmm. The, the joke was that I did a screen grab of the uh, hysterical, it barely fit on the iPad, the hysterical FedEx history of this package. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ken Burns could, could, do, could do nine parts on this. It's been everywhere in the Midwest, and it's like, received, you know, uh, like, uh, it goes from, like, Wisconsin to uh, Montana to Nevada. You go to the Indiana Jones animation. <laughs> exactly the same um and so but i wanted to send her that i was like you know we should probably contact the meat people about this because i realize it's not their fault it's fedex and weather probably but still this is the second month in a row where this thing has come and like the month before that the first one i received it was just barely frozen and just barely frozen is not how you want meat yeah yeah <laughs> the meat people as brady calls them the meat <laughs> the human meat people that's my first episode of that show that I've uh, I've listened to. I really enjoyed it. I think I'm going to listen to that podcast. I didn't realize what a young podcast it was. I might listen to this podcast. Uh, I don't even know which episode you're talking about. Oh, uh, the one about around Christmas time where you can, there's an iPhone app that'll call your kid from Santa. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. That's a very... Brady's a very... It's funny because I'm used to hearing uh, Gray on Mike's program, mm-hmm. where he's more the John Roderick. In this case, <laughs> uh, he's more... Gray's more the street man a little bit on uh, on Hello Internet. Is, <laughs> that, is that fair to say? I, I think they're both equally aberrant. Is that is that a better assessment, maybe? 
I guess, but uh, I like Gray's role in there. It's fun. Just like this show. Are we both equally aberrant? Oh, you and me? Yeah. I don't know. I feel like I'm really getting deep in the stack here. But like my my, my friend Dennis and I uh, uh, used to do a thing when we lived together. And even after that, he's a great friend of mine back in Tallahassee. And the idea was each time we went out to dinner, we would alternate who picks up the bill. But we didn't like keep strict track of it. And I, that was one of my favorite relationships ever was the like we each one of us pays, but we don't pay super strict. Usually it goes, oh, I th- so usually someone says, I think it's my turn. And then it's come in the kind of an Arabian way. Then it's the, the other person's uh, role to say, no, no, no. I think it's my turn this time. You say, OK. And they, and they pick it up. That's a totally different uh, objection noise than your other one, which is no, no. No, no. I love that one. I, I wait for that no. one. I thought I thought I had one coming. You and I noticed was, that. It was snatched away from me. No, no. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure how I started doing that. Yeah. No, anyway, I, talk about deep in the stack. So, for, in, so that, in those type of relationships where it's like we yeah. alternated, but it wasn't strict, you know how that works out, though. You know that one of you paid way more than the other. Not true. Probably through no particular mm. fault of your... It's not as if it's a master plan by one of you to screw the other out of payment, but it's just the way it works out. Like, I would be shocked if that ended up being 50-50. Yeah, but I mean, the, the other note then, uh, it's nice that you don't care that much. No, you don't care that much. You don't know what's in Dennis's heart of ours. He's, he's there. <laughs> Poor he's, Dennis. He's milking that grudge for the past three decades. Every time he drinks from a water fountain, he thinks of how many more meals he bought than you. <laughs> Remember that time we went to Guthrie's Chicken Fingers? I, think he might <laughs> I remember, Marilyn. No, oh, I remember. <laughs> He's got a crazy wall with red yarn. He's <laughs> crazy in your meat package. So this time, so anyway, the joke was, I did a screen grab on the iPad. I sent it, I sent it to my wife, and I says to her, I says, hey, look, you know, looks like we're within three days of receiving our frozen meat. And when it did arrive, uh, it was bad. It's a 35-pound box. It's mostly packing. But 35-pound box, and there was blood. <laughs> there was blood in the box, which is not what you want in your frozen meat shipment. Your neighbors on next door are like, package dripping blood delivered across the street. PG&E said is anyone there else sp- seeing this? PG, anybody else see this? PG&E says there's not supposed to be anyone in the area. What's in the box, Merlin? What's in the box? I mentioned it to uh, on this other program. And here in the middle of my uh, my Max imposed tweet drought, I get this totally random tweet from this guy who's tweeted twice since October, full stop. And what did he say? It was like, oh, hey, Merlin, <laughs> I was listening to your show and heard about your experience with pound sign grass fed meat, something like that. He says, any chance it's my company X at symbol? I'm not going to say the name. If so, let me let me fix this for you. So this show that's like, you know, it's okay successful. It's not a giant successful pop. Not It doesn't have millions of downloads. But somehow, see, I'm guessing somebody told the guy, hey, formerly famous podcaster Merlin Mann, he, uh, he has bloody meat. Could that be York pound sign grass-fed box? Yeah, six, six degrees of meat, they call that, because someone who listens knows someone who knows someone who knows someone who works for the meat company. Oh, inside like the meat, the meat community? Yeah. So that was weird. So the guy who's like, uh, the, he's got the meat startup. And, uh, and of course, the thing is, you go and you search Twitter on this company. Boy, they have had a rough couple of weeks. It's bad. Oh, the ass. I will not be able to get your bloody boxes any longer. So, so you couldn't. So your frustration was that because of the silly challenge, you can't tweet back. But could you like email them back or whatever? 
I can't. Uh, the rules are very complex. The rules are very Byzantine, but essentially, it's a uh, it's like a Shabbat Twitter. Like you cannot <laughs> cause or you allow need a boy to come in and tweet for you. <laughs> right. I'll get a shiksi to come in and turn on my elevator for Twitter. You get a. Um, you're not allowed to cause. This did get a little Talmudic. <laughs> but you're not allowed to cause a new tweet or reply to happen on your behalf. Or by inaction, cause something to be tweeted. <laughs> is that, who is that, Asimov? Yeah. <laughs> the three laws if that, of If that, that joke wasn't made on the show, someone is falling down on the job on that podcast. Alas. Um, and now it's going to come up on your show probably, too. On your other program. You did a, you did a what, did you do a Nintendo robot this week? Is that what that was? I'd never heard of Rob. Oh, I came track. Talk, talk about, uh, you know, a tape ahead call-in show. That, that oh, you recorded those a million years ago. Yeah. So that was weird, because ordinarily I would respond back, and in my friendly public persona, I would say, oh, hey, yeah, that's uh, us, and, uh, you know, here's the thing, turns out, I just got the, uh, the email from FedEx, I got the thing where FedEx tells me when something's coming to the house, and says, hey, you know... 35-pound box on the way. They're saying by Friday this time. So today is Monday as we record this, Monday the 16th. They're saying I will have the meat. Now, to me, maybe I'm a little bit of a carnivorous dilettante. I still feel like five days kind of feels like a lot of days for frozen meat. Do you have a thought on this? Not unless it was actually killed in the box on day four before it arrived at your house. In other words, they package up the cow and the slaughterhouse. and It's a Heisenberg uncertainty steer. Yeah. Travels around for five days, then uh, you know, on the fourth day... It's butchered, and then, yeah. Yeah. We've been pretty satisfied, though. We got, uh, last time, we got some uh, some pretty good pork chops. We got, it's all grass-fed, pounce on grass-fed. And so we got some, um, oh, there's another one to go on your list. People who put octothorps in front of almost every noun. Yeah, That's right out. Some people use Twitter that way, and I'm... It, it fascinates me because what I'm, I'm not more interested in the consumer side of that. The producer side, whatever. People are weird. But like presumably there's some connection or some... Somebody's clicking some on pound sign politics somewhere. Or just like the, the hashtags that can't possibly... Like I think everyone thinks that every tweet they make is one hashtag away from rocketing them to stardom by originating a hashtag. So every sequence of seven words, it's like, this could be a hashtag and this could be and this could be. And if I don't make them as a hashtag, there's no way I'm going to be on Good Morning America as the originator of this amazing hashtag that got so much traction last night. So every sentence is just made up of a series of hashtags. But I feel like it's it's a little bit like back in the day when everybody was first learning a little bit of gray hat SEO, where you might, you know, obviously keyword stuffing, you're not supposed to be doing that. But like we, all of us learned or were taught or were told fairly early on, hey, listen, don't, you know, everybody's going to tell you, go stuff a bunch of keywords into the meta tag. But apparently the story was that Google just utterly ignores those. And that's kind of how I feel with Twitter, where it's like, who's out there searching on like, pound sign Trump? Like, who's doing that? And when you look at political Twitter, or when you especially when you look at like, you know, dumbass Silicon Valley Twitter, it's just all over the place. But they must think somebody's clicking on it. Well, I mean, the, the right way to do it, if there is a, a right way, is when you do have some kind of cause, whether it's political or charity or whatever it's going to be, uh, and you have the right people who are popular in that community, tweet a bunch of stuff that makes it clear that what they expect, you know, what they're trying to do is get a bunch of their followers to climb on board this thing to get this hashtag trending. And there's only one hashtag, right? And they're just trying to get everyone, let's all agree. The hashtag we're going to do for this is... Pound, pound sign breakfast all day. Right, exactly. And then we're, we're all going to get together about that. We're the breakfast community. This is how you spell it. This is how you capitalize it. 
everybody now in this one hour stretch is the time to tweet that hashtag and get it trending. And I suppose there must be some consumers of Twitter who view Twitter not by looking at their follow list, but by finding out which hashtags are trending and clicking on them and then weeping for humanity as they scroll through the list. I mean, I, I, I literally think there is no hashtag you can click on that is trending that will not make you weep for humanity. Like there's none. There's no such thing. I breakfast all day. That's not safe. If you clicked Mm-mm. on that, you would you would just your head your hand your head would be in your hands before you're down three pages. Like well, it's especially impossible. if it's been, if it's been more than an hour, it will have been heavily colonized. Yeah, uh, by by all the scoundrels and boobs and butts, right? And I boobs mean. and butts. Have your boobs and butts gone down? My boobs and butts have gone. It looks like Gruber's still getting them. My boobs and butts have gone. And Marco, my boobs and butts have gone way way. I I just I don't get boob and butt followers anymore. I'd, I'd never had the flare-ups that you guys had. I, I have occasional ones, and I block uh, pretty, you know, I, I, like, I've never had so many that I had to stop blocking, though. Let's put it that way. Like, they okay. just come and I block, and it shows that, that uh, they're, they're not coming to me in particularly high volume, because if they become to you in high volume, you just can't be bothered to block anymore. It's just too many taps or whatever. So anyway, the meat is on the way. Uh, I can't use Twitter. And it's hard. Look, I couldn't, uh, not that it matters. But, uh, you know, I didn't get to promote our program. I like to make a little joke. I've got, right here in the chamber right now, I've got our, our alternate titles for the latest episode. Alternate? Alternative? How do you say that? That's two different words. I think it technically should be alternative. Alternate means every other. Or, or, or alternate, no, as Mike no, says. No, 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 no. Every word has a million definitions, and one of them is the one that you want. Including hyperbole. Yeah. Um, hmm, but anyway, it was like, I, this, this stuff keeps, though. Like, save that stuff. It's all gold. Uh, tweet it, tweet it when you're allowed to again, because it's not as if, uh, especially for an every two week show, it's not as if like no one will care about that later. Because like we, we both of us, I think, are in the camp where we feel most comfortable tweeting about a thing once. Oh yeah, which for is sure. which is a camp. The other camp is why you got to feel so self conscious about it. Tweet it like crazy because people aren't Twitter completionists. Like. For a first approximation, nobody is a Twitter completionist, right? So For the West Coast. So you have to tweet multiple, multiple not just East Coast and West Coast, but all around the mm-hmm. world in multiple days. You have to tweet like seven times a day, every day for two weeks to make sure that all your followers see something. Well, if, that, if that is the plan, then you are absolutely correct. It's, it, a lot of it is aesthetics and taste to me. Right, like there's right. some things... Well, like, for example, like, and I wasn't able to say, like, hey, everybody, there's tickets to this Roderick on the Line show if you want to come. I wasn't allowed to do that. It's all Max's fault. But even still, I don't believe in doing that. I wouldn't do that generally twice in a day. I mean, I if I promote anything, I try to spread it out and I try to make it fun. Like, I'm not saying I always do make it fun, but if I'm going to do that, I want to add something to it rather than just quoting somebody saying that this was really good. Yeah, if you, if you really do want to, more people to see it, you have to come up with some way to tweet it more than once. But like, so it, it, I'm not saying one way is better or worse than the other, but like, it's it's who it's also who you decide you want to keep following. Yeah. For me, the people who follow me, I think, are not expecting me to tweet 17 links to my podcast. They're expecting one, but I think they're also not using my Twitter account as a means to tell when podcasts are created. Um, and, and these days, for, most, for podcast stuff, mostly what I want to do is retweet the official account. I don't want to have to construct my own tweet about it because often I, do, I can't can't handle that. I can tell. I can tell you from Nuzzle. I mean, there's uh, this is nothing or against you, me, anybody, but you know, Nuzzle tells me that amongst the followers out there, the people who retweet ATP are you guys. The people who retweet back to work are Dan and me. Uh, I don't know if Roderick is even using Twitter anymore, but uh, but no, and but I'm also not convinced that it has. 
I think that after, this is really a can of worms, I don't know how much impact it has after a certain point. Like, obviously, if you're bootstrapping something, you're getting something off the ground, you want to let people know about it. And I will frequently say, hey, this is a new thing I'm doing. I really want you to check it out. Or I will sometimes say, hey, I happen to really like this particular episode, or hey, this would be a good starter episode, et cetera, et cetera. In my aesthetics and taste, like, those are all okay. I'm not sure how much you buy yourself by blasting people after a certain point. It, it may have an effect, and it probably certainly differs based on who it is and what it's about. But like once you've matured to plus or minus 20% of however widespread your show is going to be, I don't know if it adds that much. Yeah, the, well, the, the, aside from just, you know, you called it aesthetics and taste, that there's probably a bunch of other words too, but just in general, it comes out as like what you feel comfortable doing, right, in terms of how much self-promotion you're comfortable with, which for me is yeah. a small amount. Uh, the other two aspects of it are one keeping your powder dry which is when you do have a really great episode and you do do a, a, you know a special purpose bespoke artisanal one-off tweet where you actually have a comment on the episode instead of just reflexively retweeting the official account right that has so much more weight if you're not yeah. the type of person who does that and someone happens to you at least in my own mind that's how i'm thinking about it. who knows for the people who are reading it they don't know how often i'm maybe they think i tweet like that all the time but who knows and the second one is it's shocking to me to discover people who follow me and are you know regular uh listeners to a podcast i'm on or like you know whatever like uh, uh, seem to be heavily into something that i'm doing which is great but have no awareness whatsoever of many other things right and so they'll say boy i really miss i really miss uh hypercritical i wish you were still podcasting and to, yep. those, to those people i you know i will reply personally to those people and say oh actually i am still podcasting and i mean that makes me think that i'm not doing enough <laughs> i'm not doing enough self-promotion because this person follows me on twitter and i look through their replies and like has conversations with me on twitter but they use twitter I guess on a time schedule that I'm I'm not on, or they're not a completionist, or I tweet to low volume for them to ever see my tweets, and they're like, "Boy, I remember back when you podcasted. That was great several years ago. I kind of missed that. Are you ever going to podcast again?" And I will give them a single reply and say, "Oh, if you liked X, you might like Y, right?" Um, and and that's all I'll do. But doing that, I have to say, makes me think that I am not I'm not fulfilling that utility role as a tweeter, and the utility role being I follow this person because I might be interested in something they're doing. And if they're following right. me for years and years and don't know that I still have podcasts, I'm I'm failing them. How about T-shirts? That's the one that always kills me. Is I feel like oh, I am the worst shill in the world. Like we're, we're going to have this T-shirt, like with in the case of like Roderick, we're going to have this T-shirt on Cotton Bureau for two weeks, and I I don't want to you know beat people over the head with it, but I, the whole time I'm bracing because I know it's going to happen, and I'm sure you know, I'm sure you yeah. got the same yeah, thing, no, which angry. is for for two weeks or three weeks. I I I. I realize that I have pushed beyond what I consider um, – I've tweeted more than I want to to promote something, and I feel it. And I feel like, ugh, this feels so gross. But here's the thing. I know mm -hmm. what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. I know what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to write it on this card, and I'm going to put it in this envelope, and then here's what's going to happen. What's going to happen is the very second those T-shirts are no longer available for purchase – would you like to look <laughs> look in the envelope and tell me what happens? You're, you're signing up. You're signing up for months, months of people being angry at you. Oh, I wanted a T-shirt. I didn't know they were for sale. You should have tweeted about it. Months of that. Sometimes six months. 
of people literally angry at you because you didn't tell them you were selling cheeserts. No matter how and, much well, you what, what a complimentary it. thing to be angry about, but it's also crazy frustrating because I already feel like a small person for having promoted it as much as I did. And it's like, you can't win. Right. I mean, and like, it's, you know, so there's a couple aspects of that. One, that motivates me to like, obviously, again, failing, failing the people who are following me. Obviously, people are following me. They want to know when t-shirts are for sale. If I have not tweeted enough about t-shirts and, you know, not just a few people, like very few people while the t-shirts are for sale will say anything. But after the t-shirts are no longer for sale is, you know, it's probably the most replies I ever get is after a t-shirt sale that because people wanted them. And it's like, there's nothing you can do about it. Like, I would love to give you a t-shirt. I can't turn back time because of the way the t-shirt things. And then they're like, when are they going to be on sale again? You have to say, I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, know, they're not, most of the time they're not mean about it, but I feel bad and they feel bad. And then you're like, you know, you know, I should have, I should have tweeted more. Is that, is that the lesson I'm going to take from this? That I and so the next time it comes around, you try to remember that and you're like, I should tweet more about it. But like, maybe the Twitter is just the wrong forum for this. And you should just mention it on the show. I don't know. It's, it's a difficult situation. I want everyone who wants t-shirts to have them and nobody who doesn't want t-shirts to have to hear about them. That's, that's what we want. And that's not well, possible. Right. And, and you also know that feeling of having missed out on something. And th- this is, this is the thing at a certain level of scale, you lose track of all these being, you know, individual people. And in that case, that is an individual person. Like we're trying to use this as some example, of this bigger thing. But the sucky part is that's an individual person, person that they're not doing that to frustrate you. They're legitimately saying, Oh man, I wish yeah. I'd known about this. Yeah, totally. And you wish they'd known about it too. And you just like, oh, what can, what can we do to make this work? Is there some kind of, you know, do we need to have like a, a pager system where if you're interested in t-shirts, connect this to your ankle and it will buzz when they're for I don't know. We should circle back to this a little bit on our mini topic, but we have a little bit more follow-up. I see you've entered something here. Do you have some follow-up on locked Apple IDs? Is this regarding your, uh, your, your account getting pinged a lot? Just more whining because I think in the hour and a half before we began recording my uh, apple id was locked twice and uh, like that is a frequency that once a day is frustrating you know once every hour is like and and again i feel like i have no recourse because someone somewhere this is my guess i don't think it's malicious i think someone somewhere does not know uh what their email address is that's what it comes down to they think their email address is my email address but it's not Mm-hmm. And they have maybe they have it entered into a program that every time they wake their computer tries to log on and locks my thing. Maybe they're manually entering it over and over again. But the system that Apple has, where it just tells you your Apple ID is locked and would you like to unlock it, doesn't tell you what you might do to prevent this. It's right. just like, oh, this thing happened. You can click here and go through this rigmarole and unlock it. And then you unlock it and it says yay, which, granted, is better than me having to call them or something. But I am now getting increasingly frustrated by the fact that there seems to be nothing I can do on my end to stop this from happening. Uh, and it's frustrating for everybody because um, that was my, what my wife was texting me about. My Apple ID was locked, probably because she tried to do something having to do with my Apple ID, like watch something on the Apple TV or something. And, you know, who knows what it was. But that's that's annoying. i am got mixed feelings about you even mentioning it, but uh, that's annoying. I And, I you know, I still get the mystery me pop-ups just for what it's worth. I got one last night. I was uh, going to watch something somewhere, and I got the whole... Apple TV wants you to log back in something, something, check for purchases and that kind of stuff. Yeah, the locked Apple IDs, strangely enough, 
actually make me feel slightly better about the inevitable swarm of please enter your thing because somehow i say okay well my apple id was just locked so now yeah. i should expect every single device including the mac that i'm sitting in front of right now which you know <laughs> in the middle of this podcast, yeah <laughs> pops up the thing and says you know and and I'm, I'm signed up to do that on like you know now that it's happened every one of my devices is going to have that prompt eventually it's just a question of when my phone my ipad my apple tv every mac i'm ever logged into so for each one lock event, I expect that equals, you know, N uh, entering of your Apple ID things. I guess if I had two in, in quick succession, those sort of coalesce and I just have to unlock everything once. But I don't know. I, I, just, I just threw that up because it was so fresh in my mind and, and it's, I find it continually frustrating. And it's not at the denial of service uh, type level now because, you know, once or tw- even twice a day is not that big a deal. But it's the fact that it, there doesn't seem like there's anything I can do about it. So I'm sort of I'm at the mercy of the locked Apple ID. Gross. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you by Squarespace. Enter the offer code DIFFS at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. Make your next move with Squarespace because Squarespace lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain, award-winning templates, and more. Maybe you want to create an online store. Maybe you want to create a portfolio. Maybe you want to create a blog. Well, Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that lets you do just that. There's nothing to install, no patches to worry about, and no upgrades needed. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff. Squarespace has got you covered. They have award-winning 24 by 7 customer support if you need any help. They let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. And all those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas I got to tell you, I've been a fan, user, advocate, evangelist for Squarespace for more years than I can remember. I've got a bunch of my stuff hosted on Squarespace, including a podcast that I do, and they've been great to me. Here's the crazy part. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month. $12 a month? What? But you can start your free trial right now with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up, please remember to use the offer code DIFFS, that's D-I-F-F-S, that'll get you 10% off your first purchase. And it will show, show your support for Reconcilable Differences. Our thanks to Squarespace for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. Um, it looks to me like you've gone in here and moved uh, some topics around. Yeah, although based on your avatar, maybe we should rotate uh, uh, the second one up to the top. What do you think? Because I don't even know what the top one is. That was your entry, and I figured if you had some angle on it, we could go for it. But if not, we could rotate up. Oh, Jiminy. I so (laughs) what did you want to say about that there's no there's no winning this we're gonna go we're going down in flames with this we we are going down in flames okay all right all right this is the reason one of us one of us entered in tattoos kept coming up in the early days of this show one of us put it in there It was probably me but But it didn't just come up the early days of the show tattoos i've listened been listening to your podcast for many years and you uh, bounce off of, dance around, or touch on tattoos frequently on those shows, and then run away very, very quickly. Okay, while saying something. But now we're gonna we're gonna tackle it head on because, like me with smoking, see, I'm giving you throwing your bone here. Like me Thank with you. smoking, this is one of your what picadillos, bugaboos. Uh, mm. What is it? <laughs> Pet peeves. It's a it's, it's a bee in my bonnet. There you go. Yeah. Um, and so I, I feel like I have a more 
Mainstream. Here, here he comes. Aratory's yeah, tattoos. Here, comes, here well, comes the good cop. Come on, let's wave I know, him in. No, no, no. I'm just saying, I, I, I feel like I'm right up the middle on tattoos, but you are not right up the middle. So I would love to hear uh, the origin story for your attitude towards tattoos. And I'd like to hear you work through it and see if you can explain why you feel the things you do. Well, see, it's, it's one of those problems this is really hard to talk about because here's the thing here's the thing if you've got a tattoo you probably love your tattoo which is good because you really 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 need to love your tattoo or you need to have a healthy relationship with why you don't like your tattoo you getting a tattoo me disliking tattoos me thinking tattoos are a terrible idea does not should not, cannot have any impact on how you feel. And yet, the tattooed people are often an aggrieved party because I think tattoos are the worst. I think they're a terrible idea. And, uh, and, and so that's, that's the mean part to get out of the way. I don't get tattoos. I don't necessarily too much want to get tattoos. What I do understand is that more than ever, there is a culture about tattoos that I don't understand. Uh, maybe can't understand. I, I I get I get that there is something out there about tattoos that has utterly passed me by. And I'll unpack this as much as you want. But my feeling is I think they're an awful idea. Uh, and I think I think the fact that I feel like I get flack occasionally from people who do have I get a kind of oh boo. And it's like, well, how would it be any different Like if you cut off your ear and said, I think it's a bad idea to cut off your ear? You've made a permanent change to your body. That you, you you cannot change. Oh, the body mod people are going to get on you now. You know what? You're right. The, the ritual scarification people. Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, the first time. The first time. By the way, just to connect this back to a little bit of your your origin. The first time I had ever heard anyone mention scarification uh, in a in a serious context as a thing they were considering is from uh, one of my relatives who lives in Tallahassee. Just throwing <laughs> that out. Okay. I, I don't know if there's any connection. Yeah. Um. But yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so you you take it you take it any angle you want to go. I don't relish the role of being the karma suck about tattoos. I don't feel great about that. I'm honestly not trying to criticize people. There would be no point in criticizing people because that's the whole point of a tattoo is that once you have it, you will have that for the rest of your life. All right. So let's and go like, back to why you think it's a terrible idea. Because uh, let's, let's move away from ha- uh, why people with tattoos are mad at you because I think it's a separate thing. And okay. let's go to why tattoos are a bad idea. What's why? Why is it a bad idea to get a tattoo? Well, there are there are many aesthetic things about tattoos. Like there are things. Well, let's just get cut straight to the the, the basic idea. There's the one part that's the self doubting part of me, which is like, thank God I never got any of the tattoos I ever thought about getting. This probably shows you why I'm not a tattoo <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. person. All right, let's let's go. Can we enumerate a few of those at least, please? A couple, sure. Uh, what have I thought about the closest I ever got? I think was my friend Michael and I. Um, almost got a uh, guided by voices tattoo of our own design in uh, 1999. <laughs> oh, that's a double double whammy. Trip, are you triple? Band tattoo, guided by voices, yeah, guided my by own voices. design. <laughs> yeah. Where was this going to be? Oh, here in San Francisco. <laughs> no, no, I mean, where on your body? <laughs> Would have been on my uh, my upper arm. Right. And uh, so, so the, the the singer for that band, he does these great moves when he's singing. And one of the moves he does, he does this. This, you know, this is a guy. I became aware of him when he was 35, and I think he's probably pushing 60 now. He, um, he would do these high kicks. Mm-hmm. And so there's like a very iconic kind of like high kick that he does. 
And uh, yeah, I was going to get a tattoo on my upper arm that was a silhouette of Bob Pollard kicking, holding a microphone, and then a ring around it, it was going to say, watch me jumpstart. So this, right, so right away, I don't want to derail your thing, but right away here, I, please I, find, derail this, it, please. I, I find this interesting because I would have guessed, I mean, maybe th- th- it would seem uh, to make sense to me that the person who is against tattoos, I mean, I guess you can go two ways, uh, but the way I was expecting is that you never considered getting a tattoo because you've always thought they're a bad idea. I guess the other way you can go is like, you know, again, with the smoking, the people who are the most against smoking are ex-smokers, right? So yeah. you, interestingly, considered getting a tattoo, whereas, whereas I never, ever, ever considered getting a tattoo, never thought about what kind of got tattoo you would get, never, like, didn't got didn't didn't even enter my mind. I, I think I thought more about doing drugs than I thought about getting tattoos, and that's not a lot, wow. right? So, so zero tattoos for you. Right. No, just t- no, zero, <laughs> like, zero thought about it. And yet you are, you know, so you named, all right, so what, what's another one? Because I want to hear at least one other uh, tattoo you thought about getting. <sighs> well, this, and this is telling, because, like, I can't think of any other ones, but I can tell you that based on tattoos I've enjoyed, that my friends have gotten or appreciated or thought were cool or appropriate, you know, I've probably thought of, like, little, uh, like, little jokey things, uh, but no, this, okay, so to your point, though, you think about there's certain kinds of things in life where when you tell the story about a thing, whether that's a relationship, like think about how many stories about relationships. I know this is not exactly right, but how many relationships you hear about where people are like, oh, I like basically said I'm never going to be in another relationship again, or I, I never, I swore to, to myself I would never take this kind of job again, or I swore to myself that I would never ever in a million years move to X state, usually Florida. And then say, oh, but I did it, and I'm so glad I did it. It was the best decision I ever made to do this thing that I swore I would never do. And I think that is a certain kind of – that is a story people tell that I, I, I think can be a great story. Because it really what it says is that as much, um, as much um, pushback or as much like resistance or as much hatred of this thing as I had, like when the right one came along, I was unprepared for how much that would be the right one for me. That that I think that's one story of the tattoos are the people who are like in their thirties, forties, fifties, and they go ah, like this is this this is a thing that I that I want to do. I don't care who knows it, I don't care who sees it. This is a thing I'm doing for me, and that's going to be a thing that I do. And I, to be honest, not that it matters, but I, I have a lot of aloha for that. I feel like what I see as an old man is people who basically see themselves as a regrettedly a regrettably empty sheet of paper and they're trying to figure out what their first doodle should be. And that's where I'm like, oh God, please, oh please, please decide this carefully. That do you know what I'm saying? As as against the person who goes Because you're 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 empathizing with their future regret? Their potential well, future regret? Like I'm trying to Potentially, yeah. I mean, it's also the fact that I just think they're really ugly. But like then there's all this also this other thing where once you get a tattoo, a lot of people think now you're a tattoo person. Oh boy, here we go. Well now I you're mean, gonna go th- you can get a tattoo and not, it's like necklaces. You can have a necklace, but you're not a necklace person unless you have, you know, there's, there's a line. So right. You can have a tattoo or it'll be a tattoo. So I'm going to say, like, we all know the tattoos that non-tattoo people have. You got the thing on your ankle, right? You're not a tattoo person. Oh, sure. Person. You, get, you get a mushroom or you can get a tramp stamp. You, 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 yeah. Well, tramp stamp, I think, is borderline. But and that's a pejorative. Uh, there's a so lot of women who are pushing 30 that have a tramp stamp. Um, but you get, like the little four leaf clover, um, like sure. some, some tiny thing on your wrist. Um, and I my think, Instacart shopper yesterday had a uh, tiny red heart under her eye. Well, face tattoos, you're a tattoo person. I feel like that's <laughs> that's over the, the line. Um, but I'm thinking of, of small, discrete tattoos that people don't normally see. And I would say for for uh, for most people, I think upper arm, like uh, your you know, like the outside of the top of your arm, 
is also a non-tattoo person spot because that's mostly covered. And if you have a tattoo there, I don't think, you know, you're a tattoo person that like, this is, this is a thing you're going to do and get, and and for tattoo people, I'm not saying this is, you know, as, as a, uh, you know, as a bad term or whatever, like the the type of people who you think are, uh, going to get a lot of tattoos like you said you know for people people who get like sleeves on their arms or all sorts of things and 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 you think they're they're you said before that you think mostly they're terribly ugly but you also said you've seen tattoos that you thought were cool so what's the oh absolutely there's some i've seen some that are just absolutely exquisite especially some of the uh the women uh that i know with tattoos it's something where they have deliberated i i have a i have a i'm not as close to her as i used to be but i have a very good friend who lost a baby and she spent months designing this tattoo. And I don't want to over-dramatize this, but what she came out with when she was done was not only beautiful, because she's a very gifted artist, but it was important to her. And I like I could not have any more aloha than I have for her in that decision. She sat and she deliberated over that. Now, this is not my decision. This is your decision. But in that case, she did everything with just a huge amount of care, consideration, and mindfulness and ended up with something, something timeless that's probably going to look great for the rest of her life. And it's important to her. That's the safest kind of tattoo, in, safe in, in terms of how you think about tattoos, I would imagine, um, that you could possibly get is a remembrance of someone who's passed away. Because for, we, for, we had, we lost, uh, my, my nephew uh, died at, uh, when he was in high school um, a few years ago. Yeah, and a bunch of his family um, got this same kind of like homemade tattoo. Uh, not homemade, but like home design. Yeah. Like they had, had their own design for this that was meaningful to them. So, gosh, I'm certainly not trying to, you know, to beat up on that. And in fact, I mean, you look at somebody like a Brett Terpstra, it's like, that guy's kind of a badass. He looks really cool. Like, he's got a bunch... I- I'm just... Well, but I, like, I feel get, terrible. Like, I think getting at the heart of why remembrance tattoos are the safest possible tattoos you can get is I don't think anyone will ever regret them. Right? Um, no, unless no. maybe you get them across your forehead. Right? But but, e- but even then, I-, I think it's very difficult to regret that. Um, and they're so similar to... I think the type of tattoo that is most likely to be regretted. No, not the homemade band tattoo. Um, but it's so similar in that when you, you know, the, the remembrance tattoo is is you get for a person that you care a lot about. So, but somebody that, and so, someone that you'll always miss. Right. You also get a, a tattoo for a person you care a lot about for someone you are in a relationship or are married to. And those tattoos, because of the, because of human nature... Uh, you are the most likely to regret because, statistically speaking, the odds of you still being in a relationship with the person whose name you get tattooed on your body somewhere when you're 18, by the time yeah. you are 80, are very low. Um, or at least they're you know under 50% in this country or whatever. Like, I, have, I have a couple friends that got, uh, they didn't get their names, but they had something they did that was kind of cool. I mean, I hope they stay together. But I mean, they both got uh, their wedding rings were tattoos. Yeah. That's kind of cool. I mean, talk about symbolic. Yeah, I mean, I guess I mean you have to do the odds of like, well, the the, the divorce rate may be X percent across the entire America, but within my specific demographic and the age I'm getting married, I'm not sure how much percentages actually, come into a lot. It's of It's actually above, you know, blah blah. Anyway, but the, the reason you're going to end up regretting that is because if you do split uh, split with someone, like you know, nobody dies, but you actually get divorced or whatever, you may not have such great feelings about them, and it may be more difficult for you to get another relationship if people see the name of someone else tattooed on you. It is, you know, whereas if someone has died, nothing is going to happen probably related to that person that's going to change the way you feel about them. Whereas if you get the uh, the name of your high school sweetheart tattooed on your arm, uh, yeah. there are lots and lots of things that can happen later in life that will make you feel differently about that name. 
Yeah, and especially if you take it from, you know, what if that person like cheated on you and then left you and it's like, mm-hmm. oh, now like that's But but again, and this is where I'm I'm trying to Look at this as an abstraction. Uh, I don't need a ton of email about this. I'm sorry if I'm saying anything that offends people. But I have to say, I think if you are a tattoo person, you must very naturally look at this extremely differently than I do. And I, I want to just say I really accept that. Like you, there's all kinds of things that we, the choices, that we, decisions that we make in life. And like, that's who we want to be. And that's who we decide to be. And in this case, like you're really mostly all in on that. And I don't, I don't. I don't want to say that I that I disrespect that. And in fact, the people who like become like big time tattoo people, like that's their thing. But like, what percentage of the population do we really need to be that tattooed? You know, I mean, it's I I. And now I'm, I'm going to be the old do the old man angle here, which is like, oh man, it's like, you know what? I don't know. I just I, you can't. Okay, here's here's a story. This is quick. My father was engaged to a woman. And it would be 1950, 51. It was when he's in Korea. He was engaged to a woman. And he got her name and mom tattooed on his arm one night when he was like pissed drunk in, uh, in Tokyo. So I think my dad was not very often. But he, he and his buddies were really drunk. And everybody went, because that's the thing he did. Like, you're in the army. You're in Korea. You're in the police action. You're in Tokyo. Or maybe Seoul. I think it was probably Tokyo. He got a tattoo. Not a very... Nice, not a very, like, well-done tattoo. He came back. He and Nancy broke up. He met my mom. My mom didn't have beef with it, but he eventually decided, like, he had to get rid of this thing. He could not have this woman's name on his arm. And so you can imagine what it was like to get a tattoo removed in the late 60s. It was really, really bad. It isn't like there's no, nobody's going to be, you know, like, so you could be on Shark Tank today with a way to get rid of somebody's tattoo. Back then, I mean, it was pretty medieval to get rid of that. And I have to tell you, knowing that story about my father, that is partly on my mind, I think. I can't help but be. It's, there's a huge number of other, like, aesthetic things and just, like, other things that we can get into. But, like, that's one big one is I think I grew up with that idea that, like, no, this is permanent. This is not a T-shirt. Right. If you like the second Star Wars movie better, you don't get to replace the shirt. Like this, this is you now, and that is chilling to me. Yeah. So to speaking, you're speaking of how uh, tattooed people may think of things differently. One obvious way that I can imagine thinking of it differently in the example I just gave, or you know, or your dad to get a tattoo the name of a woman who is not the woman you end up marrying, you end up breaking up, or whatever. Uh, yeah. One way to look at that is. To not regret that tattoo, but to have it be just like another signpost in your life. It's, it's, it's almost totally. as if you, you know, did you regret having that relationship very often? No, because you're like, that was an important part of my life. It made me who I am today. We're not together anymore. Um, but in the same way that you wouldn't re- erase the experience from your life, you also wouldn't erase the name. And that's the way to, to, to understand that tattoo in a way that doesn't make yeah. you regret it. I totally, I, I totally, I totally agree with you. And instead of feeling like, oh, should I instead try and have somebody draw the cartoon character Nancy mm-hmm. next to it in order to give <laughs> yeah. it some context, right? To, to just and and I think that is, you know, the, the other way is that if you have a lot of tattoos, the the uh, I think that lends itself to the signpost narrative where you just keep adding a tattoo for every significant thing that happens in your life. So you're sort of writing the story of your life on yourself, which is beautiful in a way, and. And it doesn't have to all be, you know, people who you love to have died, right? It can be just things that you have done, uh, you know, 
you, you could get a tattoo every time you move to a different state, every time you enter or leave a relationship, uh, you know, for a nice car that you got for your first home to get, like, just, a, you know, a scrapbook of yourself on yourself. Uh, yeah, and in yeah. that situation, that way of thinking about tattoos makes how can I regret anything that's on there? Because even the events or decisions I regret, the tattoos on my body are reminders of that decision, not a reinforcement of it. Stop viewing them as like, I, I, I regret this, like I... I cheated on this person and we broke up and I feel bad about it. The tattoo is a reminder, like, not to do that again or to appreciate what you have or whatever and not constantly there hectoring you for making a bad decision, but just, you know, like, there's so many ways to reframe this so that there right. it's almost impossible to get a tattoo that you actually regret if you put your... I, I have right no space. problem with any any part. I'll tell you another one that comes to mind is uh, if you ever watch the TV show uh, Top Chef, uh, the co-host of that show is this, this woman... Um, She's, she was a model. She was married to Salman Rushdie at one point. Did you ever watch Top Chef? You ever watch it? I'm sure I've seen bits and pieces, but I've never followed the well, show. Anyway, Padma um, had been in a terrible automobile accident, I want to say, when she was like my daughter's age. I think she was pretty young. And uh, basically, this the, the car window, she's in the driver's or in the uh, passenger seat, the car window broke. So like today, this, this really beautiful woman, this model, she has this scar. It's got to be nine to 11 inches long. I mean, at least eight or nine inches long down the length of her upper arm. And she does not do a thing to cover it up. I mean, it looks like stitches. Like she's got a scar that looks like a giant car accident <laughs> happened. But it's part of her thing. Like that's, that's how, so that, I think that's one way to look at tattoos is like, hey, for better or for worse, however this turned out, like this is, this is part of me. This is who I am. In that case, I think that's kind of a baller move. Uh, to like not be thinking about parsing your wardrobe based on whether or not people know that you were in a car accident. You know what I mean? There's something kind of cool about that. Whereas on the other hand, you see a lot of people who look like they bought clothes because they, you know, they want you to notice that they got a thing on their neck. And it's like, ugh. yeah. Well, so the other this, yeah, I'll, I'll fully admit to going good cop here, which is a phrase that we will revisit in a future episode someday. Maybe this is our new free will. Um, yeah. The other thing that came to mind when hearing you talk about is that. I would like to live in a world where people with a lot of tattoos are not looked at differently. Like, not that I think everyone should have tattoos, but like the the decision of how to dress, what to wear, or any other permanent part of your body is not grounds for categorization and suspicion obviously you know that's not the way we work right i'm saying i'm just like i i ideally getting a whole bunch of tattoos should not prevent you from having or holding any kind of job that's that's the i that's i think that's the idea realistically speaking that's not the way the world works if you have ten thousand face tattoos you're probably not going to be the ceo of a fortune 500 company in the united states I think there's no reason for that because who the hell cares what you decide to put on your face? Um, mm-hmm. The only reason it's a factor now, it, it's like it's a, it's a snake eating its tail. Like uh, it's chicken and egg. It's like if you have a bunch of prominent face tattoos in a society that looks at face tattoos as something that categorizes you as undesirable or uh, unstable in some way, then that shows by you choosing to do that you either relish that categorization or don't care about it. Therefore, 
that attitude disqualifies you from being Fortune 500 CEO. And it just goes around and around and around. And it's like, well, by having face tattoos, you're showing you're not ready for this. And by showing you're not ready for this is why you got face tattoos. It's it's stupid and it's pointless. Mm-hmm. And it's like any other kind of prejudice that has to do with how people look. I feel like it can be overcome, even though this is voluntary. In the same way that hairstyle types, you know, like that if you have, I think uh, some articles about this circulating a couple of years on the web, like if you are a black person and leave your hair natural, that apparently is a barrier to getting all sorts of jobs. And in fact, various jobs will demand that you change your hair. And that is the most absurd because they're 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 literally saying the way you are is disqualifies you. Change yourself, right? Um, and tattoos aren't like that because you're choosing to get them or whatever. But in the same way, it's, it's it feels like the same kind of injustice to me, right? So, I, would you be on the same page with that? That you that you would like to live in a world where no matter how many tattoos you have you are not restricted from uh, being taken seriously or having a particular job or whatever? Well, yeah. I mean, and this is why I didn't even want to talk about this, because I don't want anybody to be discriminated against. This is my thing. This is, this is my, my own thing. Um, no, I, and the way you're describing that, I mean, it's, it's not that far away from saying, well, like, women aren't qualified to have this kind of job because they get periods or something. It's like, it's kind of an arbitrary thing. I just, as I am somebody who has, at every turn in my life, um, almost every turn, I've been able to say, like, oh, man, that could have turned out different. Wow, I really lucked out on that one. There's so many things where, like, I'm like, oh, man. I just these those little like sliding doors kind of moments where I'm like, I'm really glad it went this way instead of that way. If you're a person like that, if you're that insecure inside as I am, the idea of willfully deciding that you're going to put your favorite band as a permanent mark on your body is a harrowing idea. Because I've liked a lot of bands a lot, a lot, a lot. And as I stand here today... I could, I could think of half a dozen of them where that would have gone through my head. And I'm so glad that I didn't do any of them. And that's just me. That's my own thing. I sound like Casey. But like, that's, that's my own deal. I don't want anybody to be discriminated against. But, you know, like, there wasn't there a thing where the Hardys guy was talking about how, like, you know, if you're going to work there, you got to have all your teeth and stuff like that. I think there's a certain kind of um, discrimination, probably, that happens on that level that is, uh, I don't want to say understandable, but like it's kind of understandable. I don't think it's right, but I but I, I do understand why it happens. And that's I mean, there's a reason that there are programs to help people that have been in gangs get rid of their tattoos. Like that's there's a reason that's a thing. Now I don't know. That might be like the new version of like uh, you know uh, trying to shock people out of being gay. But like you know, there's a reason that's that's the way that it is. I don't think it's right, but there's a reason it's that way. Well, yeah. I mean, like this even. Even the gang tattoos thing, like, doesn't actually make any sense if, like, everyone involved was rational. But, of course, we know people aren't. But, like, you know, because if you can imagine everybody was able to use the rational part of their brain all the time and someone had a gang tattoo and they get out of a gang and they they are they want they want to, you know, get a job, there would be a shared understanding that you have like it would just be another signpost in their life. This is this is a decision you made at one point in your life and you have now made a different decision and that thing on your face is just a signpost of past decisions, but you are judged by who you are now and what your actions are now and going forward, and you are not eternally condemned by your past. That's not how people work, unfortunately. So that's why, you know, the gang, people get the gang tattoos removed. And also so they don't get shot by other gang members in the street or whatever. So you're, but I mean, you are really playing good cop on this, and I'm being a total gentleman about it. So you're telling me, like, when you you, you run into somebody who has 
you, on whom you can see the result of many years of face tattoos. Are you able to suss out which ones you like best of their face tattoos? Do you have a strong feeling about which no, ones no, you enjoy? I'm just saying, like, enjoy? If, if people are able to turn their life around and to get yeah. a, or, you know, whoever it may be. I mean, if you go whole American History X and you got a swastika on your, on your forehead, right? If you're able to yeah. turn it around and figure that out and figure out that you had it wrong, right? And go on to be a... Good productive I don't disagree with of society, any of that. I, right? I'm trying to get you. I'm. I'm. I, I don't disagree with any of that. This feels like the easy path. What's your opinion on this? Like when you see somebody, like I understand, like you're you're like descending from the mountaintop with this with this very broad and open idea of how our society should work. You don't have a feeling when you see somebody. Oh yeah, with, no, with, I'm just as human as anyone else. It's just like that's that's one part of your brain is trying to figure that out, and the other part, I, I'm saying like in the abstract, right? In, in yeah. the abstract, I, I feel like it shouldn't be like it's one of those. It's, it's so many things. In, in life, you have one instinctive reaction to, and then hopefully, you know, the better, better angels of your nature will correct for that and to say, you know, well, wait a second. Do I just think this because of, you know, historical prejudice X or whatever, you know, like and th- th- those things that should be that, that self-examination like that has to be going on. Otherwise, you will be a slave to what you were taught and your past experiences and you won't be really living your life right um so for i mean first of all i have to say that i don't run into a lot of people with a lot of tattoos and in the circles i travel in when i do see them mostly they look awesome (laughs) because you know the circle the nerd circles we travel in uh you know nerds tend to do everything to the nth degree and are are good planners and i see some amazing looking tattoos amazing huge you know lo- lots of tattoos that are very large or large continuous things usually you just see arms because you don't see people's the rest of people's body you know unless you're unless people have big leg tattoos or whatever um and yeah. i have to say that almost any tattoo i've seen that is like you know a sleeve or a thing down their arm or a back i've thought were cool and especially when there are lots of tattoos like that it's harder to to be perturbed about any particular thing uh, i find myself more displeased by the singular tattoo that i feel like has not been executed well like i'm judging them all as like art like aesthetically right i mean yeah. I even i even complained about uh you know my, our, our friendly editor mike's tattoo because he got a tattoo on his arm that is square but he put it on like his the inside of his forearm and you know you've got the two bones down on your forearm that like that like twist right. and so when he moves his arm that square becomes a parallelogram like it's almost impossible to ever get it to be perfectly square and aesthetic- oh that would drive you crazy that would speaking, drive you so crazy it, it, i find it oh bothersome that these these square or you know rounded rectangle or whatever will not have 90 degree angles almost any way you hold your body except for this one position uh so i found that upsetting but obviously it doesn't bother him at all so it's fine right um yeah, I, I, mean, I don't know enough about gang tattoos. If I saw someone who had a swastika tattooed on their head, like, you have to take that information into account and say, you don't immediately know, oh, this person is clearly reformed and they're a good member. You, you don't know that, depending on where you see this person and in what context you see them. If you see them in an office, then it's probably fine. If you see them in a different context, maybe it's not fine. Like, you know, it, you have to use your judgment. But I, that that type of thing, I think, is similar to... If you saw someone wearing a coat with a swastika on it, like it's not a permanently affixed to their body, but it's a choice they've they've made. And I would say the coat is worse because if they're in an office building with a swastika on their coat, that would scare me a lot more than if they're in an office building with a swastika on their forehead. Because they decided that day. Right. They put that. the coat on that yeah. day, but that thing could be on their forehead since, you know, they were a dumb teenager or something. Right. So, yeah, the symbolism and, and alliances 
you know, choosing to show your alliances. Tattoos, in many ways, you should probably read less into it than that because it's not so easy to to strip off once you've decided that you made a change. As you noted, like removal is expensive and painful and not always perfect. Um, but I would say now that, that speaking of the, the permanent thing, the angle of like this is going to be on your body forever, I would say now the tech is probably good enough that I think we could stop considering tattoos super duper permanent. Like they're more permanent than hmm. almost anything else you can do, but they're less permanent than cutting off your ear right now right because you can do something about it i mean granted it may be expensive and it may look ugly and it may look like a scar afterwards but there's something you can do you know the the tattoo removal technology is much better now than it was and so i feel like if you're deciding not to get to get a tattoo because you feel like it's 100 percent permanent that's probably not the strongest reason because if you really really regret that guided by voices thing you have many options to recover from that you're not doomed to walk the earth with guided by voices kicker on your arm uh, for the rest of your life um whereas if you cut off your ear unless you're really lucky uh, in terms of uh nanotechnology and growing ears on the backs of mice you're pretty much not getting their ear back yeah uh, we shouldn't have done this shouldn't have gotten that tattoo i know no 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 good will come of this there is no good that will come well, of I, this. I, I think it's interesting i think i think you've done some good work here today getting back to your your father well no i sound like i sound like an ass and no you, you just know, have an opinion it's... i mean you're not you're not condemning other people for what they choose to do my my thought on this for years has been very much the same, and I realize this is an old man dad kind of thing to say, but like my feeling is you should design whatever your tattoo is going to be, design it, have it printed on a shirt, and then see if you can wear that shirt unfailingly every day for a year. But the shirt gets smelly, without missing a day, and you got to wash it. So do bodies, John. Yeah. So do bodies. Yeah, they're all stretchy. But I, I'll, I'll bet you dimes to donuts, and, and this shows you how outside of the tattoo community I am, because I'm going to bet you around day forty, a lot of people are going to say, you know, I'm kind of sick of wearing this shirt. Well, uh, one, I think a better experiment would be to wear a temporary tattoo for a year, <laughs> three a years idea. at a time. Like you put it on yeah. and as soon as it washes off, you rub it on again. Like just have, have like a series of that temporary tattoo and just keep refreshing it and refreshing it and refreshing it and refreshing it. I bet people could keep that up for a pretty long time if they chose a tattoo and a place where they would actually do it. You know, like if you got your guided by voices thing, you'd probably be reapplying yeah. <laughs> that temporary tattoo for many years perfectly happily until oh. some, one day you wake up and you go, you know what? Maybe not guided by yeah. voices. And you replace it with an REM tattoo, and you just wear that one for a few years. Yeah, I only like my early tattoos. Yeah, yeah I may have got the chronology of, uh, of your, your bands the other way. Um, one, one final angle of tattoos that occurred to me when we were looking at these things, like, as, as a permanent part of your body that you may or may not end up regretting, it's kind of interesting as a, instead of a thought technology, it's a body technology. Like, lots of people, uh, I'm thinking of this because now I have, you know, children who are getting older, and they're tweens and approaching that age. Uh, th- Teens and tweens are kind of defined by uh, the blossoming regret about different parts of your body. I don't like my nose. I don't like my eyes. I wish I was taller. I wish I was shorter. I wish my hair was curly. I wish my hair was straight. I wish I didn't have these zits. Like, you know, that's that's a thing, right? And one of the most important, I think, uh, parts of growing up is coming to terms with whatever you got. If you are a short person, the sooner you can come to terms with that, and not have it be like this giant wall in your mind that you're constantly trying to scramble over, but to just to figure it out, the happier you will be. If you want curly hair but have straight hair, want straight hair but have curly hair, like if, I mean, hair is either because you can style it or whatever, but like the more permanent things that you can't get rid of, right? If you wish you had a perfect vision, but you don't, getting over that. If you have a big giant nose, but you didn't wish you had a big giant nose, you know, 
getting over that. If you have terrible acne that's probably never going to go away and it's going to leave your face scarred, the sooner you can make your peace with that and figure it out, like to, to adjust to that and to stop beating yourself up about it, start obsessing about it, start viewing yourself as a giant acne, uh, walking acne crater, like... <laughs> Figuring that out is one of the most important and whatever it is, everyone's got their, their thing, whether, you know, figuring that out is super important because those things you can't control, like for the most part, maybe there's something you can do about acne or whatever, but like, you know, height is the best one because, you know, that one has the least uh, pitfalls. Uh, although I guess you could take human growth hormone if you really want to hack that one, but you are the height that you are better get used to it because at a certain point, it's pretty much not going to change except you are shrinking when you're getting older. Um, Right. Uh, and if you don't be okay with that, like it can lead you down the road of just like, I'll never be okay with myself until I can change this, this unchangeable thing. And so getting a tattoo that you regret is almost like voluntarily signing up to potentially have some permanent part of your body that you're dissatisfied with, allowing you to flex those muscles, those mental muscles again to say, here's how I'm going to be okay with the foolish tattoo I got when I was young. I'm not going to be okay with it by erasing it. I'm going to... I'm going to figure this one out and I'm going to say, you know, like I said, reframing it as a lesson learned or whatever and being able to be okay with yourself. Granted, this is being okay with an aspect of yourself that you chose to do to yourself. But if you view it just as permanently as your eye color or, or you know, height, you can use those exact same skills to become okay with the most regrettable tattoo in the same way that you can come to terms with the most regrettable nose. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure that's something yeah. I would encourage people to sign up for because framing it like it doesn't make that well. But but I think those skills and those muscles, those mental muscles, are really important. It's almost as if you could, it would be nice if you could give people tattoos that they thought were permanent but were actually temporary and ha- allow them to become okay with it. But I think that would be a cruel thing to do, and it's better that they just become okay with whatever it is they hate about their own bodies. There's always something. Well, the whole the whole phenomenon of choosing to do stuff to your body is very. It's a very interesting idea to me. And the way that that's that's evolved over the years, and it's it, with what you're describing, it'll be super interesting to think about like how that evolves, you know, going forward. If like if you can, on the one hand, do things that we current think currently think of as like dangerous and outrageous, if you'll be able to do the kind of extreme modifications, or you know, there's already people like there's a guy on Shark Tank who thinks you can get a blue once once you get a Bluetooth chip in your head, like installed like under your ear. Like, you know, the kind of like, so not cybernetics, but you know what I mean? Like the idea, what do they call that? The, um, the bodily modifications that are about becoming like a little more of a robot. Cyborgs? Like, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I like the one, the, the Wired Magazine one from the 90s was the uh, genetic modification to give rave kids the uh, glow-in-the-dark stuff from the, the butts of lightning bugs. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> To, to make your skin glow? Yeah. Like the same, the, the, you know, phosphorescence or whatever, like, you know, the, the ability to emit light from your skin by genetically splicing or otherwise integrating lighting bug butt goo. You know lighting bug butt goo? Yeah, I, I think I do. I would want that. Yeah, right. I think I would want that technology to be pretty sophisticated before I try yeah, it out. Yeah, that's uh, the body modification are on the forefront of this type of thing. And there's many, I think there's a dream of uh, enhancement that is always outpacing the, the available technology, right? And then there's, you know, mm-hmm. the whole other angle is aesthetic. I want to have horns. I want to have sharpened teeth. And, you know, like that's that's a more of a social statement um, uh, than any, and especially for things that have detrimental health effects, you know. 
You ever look up uh, libertarians that uh, take colloidal silver? I have, I have not looked up those two things together. You, can you explain to me the connection? Uh, colloidal silver. Go ahead and Google libertarian colloidal silver. Uh, it's this thing <laughs> that's supposed to have lots of health benefits that the government and those fat cats on Wall Street don't want you to know about. And if you take this colloidal silver, you're going to have like all kinds of huge numbers of, uh, of beneficial health effects. There is one side effect. Can you can you, can you tell what it is? Uh, is it, it turns you blue? Turns you blue. Yeah. See, so, yeah, that's the, the the guy with the suspenders. I think he's he's uh he's pretty fit. That one guy there now. I think he's like is he a congressman? That other guy. But yeah, you take enough colloidal silver and you turn blue. Yeah, I don't. How is that connected with libertarianism? Other than other than the susceptibility to uh, silly ideas. Um, I don't know that much about it. This is, uh, this is something Max Temp can turn me on to, the libertarians in colloidal silver. I think it's one of the, it's a little bit of, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to guess it's a little bit like the Alex Jonesy. Like there's this health benefit that nobody wants you to know about. Yeah, that's just a, that's straight, just straight up conspiracy people. I, don't, I, I usually don't categorize the conspiracy theorist people with libertarians, but maybe I just don't know enough about conspiracy theory people. Maybe I'm, I'm missing the big overlap in that Venn diagram. Anyway, that's super interesting. You know, not where you expect a expect a body modification uh, hack to be. If you take stop taking the silver, does the color fade? I don't know. I don't know. I I I don't know. I don't understand how it makes you blue. I guess that's silver in your body. I can't stop looking at these. Jiminy Christmas. Uh, so <laughs> so they're all alternate colors for a, a kind of blue. Da da. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Blue Apron. You can learn more about Blue Apron right now by visiting blueapron.com slash diffs. That's D-I-F-F-S. Blue Apron's mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone while supporting a more sustainable food system, setting the highest standards for ingredients, and building a community of home chefs. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with fresh, high-quality ingredients to make delicious, home-cooked meals. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients that can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. Customize your recipes each week based on your dietary preferences and choose a delivery option that fits your needs. There's no weekly commitment, so you only get deliveries when you want them. And Blue Apron delivers to 99% of the continental U.S., Blue Apron knows that when you cook with fresh ingredients that support a more sustainable food system, you can make incredible meals. So Blue Apron sets the highest quality standard for their community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, fisheries, and ranchers. New recipes are created by Blue Apron's culinary team and are not repeated within a year. You can cook recipes like mixed mushroom and potato pizza with fontina cheese, spinach and garlic oil, pork chops and garlic piccata, with scallion rice and spinach, creamy shrimp spaghetti with broccoli and Meyer lemon, magnifique. I'm going to tell you a personal note here. My favorite part about Blue Apron, it, this is a little bit corny, corny, but I'm going to be honest with you. Blue Apron nights are one of the few times that our whole family gets in the kitchen together like people and cooks a meal together. It is so much fun. My nine-year-old daughter loves prepping the, the ingredients and chopping the scallions And the truth is she ends up trying a whole lot of new foods specifically because she helped make it. And that's just the best. So go, please, right now, go and check out this week's menu. And you're going to get three meals free with free shipping. You go to blueapron.com slash diffs. That's D-I-F-F-S. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. 
blueapron.com slash diffs. Our thanks to Blue Apron for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Uh, this one is mine from a long time ago. I don't remember how this started. We were talking about something. So you don't know, you don't know what this one's going to be about exactly, right? I do not. I wrote down the four words, money on the internet. And we can take that in whatever direction you want. I guess, I guess at the time, I'm trying to remember, I was, it must have been with regard to the way that we think about value of things and paying for things on the internet. I feel like there's just a whole bunch of issues I kind of wanted your thoughts on. I didn't mean this so much as like, how do you get rich on the internet? But more like looking at the landscape and the culture, how things have changed, especially over the last, say, 15, 20 years, towards where people's ideas about what you do and don't pay for and how you pay for it are, I feel like things are continuing to change and even change kind of a lot. Even, even, even with the tentpole stuff. It used to be, you know, you'd go and download Britney Spears. Then we had the ability to buy on iTunes, et cetera, et cetera. But like even today, like I just heard a fresh air. It was about this person who wrote a book about the Americans changing, um, experiences with banks. Like how basically like people don't even like using banks anymore. I don't know. I just like the I like money on the internet. Like what, what what things are valuable? What things will people pay for? How will they pay for them? And what stuff are you watching over the next five to ten years to to, to continue to change drastically in light of how it gets paid for? Is that an interesting topic? Yeah, I, I, I would even go broader than that because as as one, uh, you know, this is another thing I would get to categorize myself as, and you too, as one of the last generations to have grown up before the internet which will be a thing that we will constantly be declaring about ourselves as we age, I predict. Um, mm-hmm. I think both of us are in the group of people who are inclined to view money so, money from the internet or business models powered by the internet or anything having to do with the internet and money as somehow more suspect than... Yeah other kinds of business models i assume that will not maybe even less real yeah just something less real about it like the existence of it the usefulness of it the dependability of it and like what it's even for it all feels much more wiggly than like real yeah money. I mean, basically we're prejudiced against it. it's the what the douglas adams thing of like anything that's invented before you're 20 uh, is you take for granted and between 20 and 30 you think is awesome and after you're 30 it's the devil's work and should not exist right whatever that we're messing up the quote but we'll find it and, yeah. and put it in the show notes but that, that that's that's one possible angle but the other thing that i think about is and this has been in my attitude my whole life you know that prejudice aside the idea that how money is made on the internet has changed like you just said it changed so much in the very short life of the internet from its beginning it's beginning of you know it's beginning popularization to the you know the masses in the 90s uh till now it's changed so much in that short period of time that it seems to reinforce the idea that if there is some way to make money on the internet, don't get too attached to it because wait five years and that way of making money on the internet may be entirely gone, maybe 10 times bigger, maybe, you know, like it, it, it seems less stable. And the reason I wanted to bring up our bias as old people against internet ways of making money is because at the same time that's been happening, if, if I look at it, uh, I step back a little bit and look at it, it also feels like all the old non-internet ways of making money have run into a bit of instability as well. Um, and maybe what could be more solid than, than housing? 
Yeah, right. I mean, you, like you buy you buy a house as long as it's you know house prices I mean, you, only go more, up. But houses and mortgages in general, that's that's part of what makes the last whatever ten years so crazy. Was like there could, nothing. What's what's more dependable than that? Oh, uh, and you know the the example from uh, my life. I mean, I'm sure there are other examples that that are not this specific, but like my parents worked for government. They had government jobs, and it used to be when we were kids, the government jobs were a known quantity that they would exist, that you would have them, that along with those government jobs would, would come an ability for you to retire and relative comfort. What you were trading was you're not going to make tons and tons of money. You could make more in the private sector, but in your government job, if you stay in it for 20 or 30 years, you're guaranteed you know, you, you, uh, a healthy retirement. And by the end of your government job, you can be making a good salary. And it may be boring, but you're pretty much, you know, unless you do something terrible, you're not going to be fired. Uh, and you're going to have an awesome pension. And these days, that is less true. Even if you have a government job, you're not guaranteed a big, giant, fat pension where you get 90% of your ta- salary for the rest of your life and health care for your entire family after you retire. That is right. ridiculous uh, to some people. I mean, certainly in the private sector, that's ridiculous. But even in government jobs, that's more difficult. The fact that you're going to have this job for life and can never be fired, you know, that's, that's no longer as, uh, as safe a bet as it used to be. And so on for all sorts of other jobs. You mentioned, you know, real estate, but also banking or working for IBM or working for a car company, like whatever thing that seems safe and stable, like people always want to buy, you know, books in a bookstore. Like, I mean, some of the, granted, the internet changed that, but like that nothing is safe and that viewing the ways to make money on the internet as somehow more suspect is perhaps foolish because everything is suspect now. There is no career or industry you can get into that gives you a rock-solid 100% guarantee that you can have this job for your entire life and retire and be happy and healthy and be guaranteed your pension that won't be looted by somebody and your company won't go out of business and you won't be laid off right before retirement. Like, that was never guaranteed, obviously. But it certainly, from my perspective, it seemed a more possible thing when I was a child than it is today as an adult. And I guess the internet is part of that, but like I said, by the same token, I that makes me try to be less suspect about the internet. This is a good way to put it. I just put a link to uh, something we've talked about a lot, I think, on here. Um, CGP, CGP Gray's video for Humans Need Not Apply, where he, he lays out a bunch of ideas or collects a bunch of ideas that I've heard of here and there over the years. But I think that's a very effective video because in, unless he's simply saying things that aren't true, I think it's v- really sobering to realize how much, how much, how can I put this? Like along the lines of like he goes into so much detail in that and other videos about the whatever you want to call self-driving cars, where you start to realize like that feels like something you just heard about fairly recently, but it's so much closer than people realize. And there's so much more reason for companies to invest in that technology than you could even begin to fathom, right? When he takes that, that chart showing like the percentage of people employed in various jobs and the number of people that are currently employed in transportation, I think it's one of the biggest employers by job type in the United States. So like, where, where is that going to go? Cause, cause there's, you know, every, every generation or every half generation, you always hear the same thing. Well, you know, get a job as a woodworker. Cause you know, at least have that training you can fall back on. Cause they're always going to need woodworkers. Well, definitely at least get training as a teacher. Cause you can always fall back on being a teacher or, you know, uh, but you, there are fewer and fewer things that you can reliably fall back on. And each one of them was something that really felt like a tentpole. And the idea of like, you know, make a little bit money, bit of money by driving a cab. Like, 
looks like that's going away too, or will go away, even though there's all this growth and things like ride sharing services. All that stuff's just going to be going away before we can even realize it. That, and I guess the other thing with that, with this this video of his is just kind of, and this really blew my wife away because she works in medicine. Is like it's staggering how many jobs in the same way that a car can be driven better by the car than by you. Is like if you're like basically um, not crowdsourcing, but if you're using something like AI on medical decisions, where like all of these different medical minds can be operating on it at, at the same time, so to speak. I mean, you get a better result, which sounds antithetical to everything we know about doctors. So not even doctors are safe. Yeah, and the thing that's protected—not protected, but the thing that has made this less onerous in the past was the the rate of change. Um, and so, if you are uh, someone who knew how to take care of horses. Uh, if you were born at just the wrong time, you may start your career as a total safe bet. Like, I know how to care for horses. I know how to, you know, feed them and, and, and clean them and keep them in a stable and take care of them. And this is a good fallback business because horses are freaking everywhere. And uh, someone needs to do this job. It's never going to go away. And then the automobile comes along. And maybe by the time you retire, you're like, I thought this would never go away. But it turns out I can see the writing on the wall. There are not going to be... 300,000 horses in New York City uh, by the time, you know, my grandchild is an adult, right? But that kind of yeah. turnover gives you room for your career. Like, it seems like it happens overnight, but if you're in the midst of a career, or even if you're beginning a career, you can you can tough it out and make it through and sail through. To, you, can, you can see the curve coming a little yeah. bit. Like, where it's not, you're not going to fall off a cliff. Right, whereas the, the automation type ones tend to come faster and you know the rate of change is faster and uh, the self-driving car thing i don't want to get into because i think i mostly disagree with almost everybody who thinks self-driving cars are like right around the corner but i think we i think we mostly just disagree on semantics and what that's we going on the list what we need about <laughs> self-driving cars but either way um the, the real question is like uh how many jobs for people uh you know driving taxis or whatever um and that can change really quickly um because that's or trucks uh, yeah. Tru- trucks would that's be the a, other like if we're going to be married to trucks as the way to get things around I mean, that's that's one that is so ripe for disruption. Yeah, all sorts of things like that. And those seem like th- th- that rate of change is happening faster. Even if, you know, you know, I'm going to start an independent bookstore and then Amazon comes along or, you know, or any type of thing, the internet-powered uh, disruption seems to be happening faster. Um, and it's difficult if you, especially if you have to put a lot of training in, if, you know, if, for example we could replace all doctors in a five-year span that's going to be a problem because it takes so many years to become a doctor and you've invested so much time and so much money and so much effort into that that if that came along you'd have a lot of really smart people very sad about the fact that they wasted all that time and i don't think that's going to happen so don't have to worry about that will be a slower turnaround um yeah to quote a show that i was i think i was on uh maybe political gab fest today you know, when, when we talk about these kinds of jobs changing, we say, well, you know, but if you're a very highly skilled worker, worker you'll be able to retool to another highly skilled job. And I forget, it might have been Claire, not, not Claire Malone, but whoever was that said, uh, yeah, well, you know, it's, it, you know, lawyers are very talented, very intelligent people, but like ask how long it would take for them to become a doctor, just as an example. Right. I mean, to change from one highly skilled thing to another is not as simple as just being smart and flexible. Because you put so much time and so much effort and you specialize and you become an expert and you can't just turn that around you know those those people can you know anyway um it's more difficult for like you know manufacturing or whatever where you you used to work in manufacturing and your job got automated away uh and it's not coming back uh because it is more economical to have machines assemble this than it is to have humans do it 
And even if you're really good at the particular step on the assembly line that you were doing, um, or even if you were at the point where you were managing teams of people assembling things, uh, managing teams of robots is very different, and you basically just have to start over. And you're hoping, again, that you don't get caught mid-career in that, that you either see it coming and make a different choice when you're setting out in your career, or you're at the tail end and you just, you know, take the early retirement or tough it out or just, you know, uh, get another job for the last few years or whatever. Like, But if these... If these turnovers happen within the span of two or three years, it's going to catch everybody who's in the career uh, unaware, whether you just started or just like everybody is just going to be, you know, like if, if suddenly if, if we could snap our fingers and in three years, self-driving cars can do everything that cab drivers do. All those cab drivers are going to be out of work. Only a small part of them are going to be at the tail end of their careers and go, oh, well, I get, you know, I guess, um, you know, I'm out of this early. They'll all be gone. And there's not enough room to, you know, maybe they can see it coming now, but there's not enough room for them to all get new jobs. And we're shifting away from money on the internet, but this, this I think we are. But do, do you remember how he? Do you remember how he starts the video with the example of the two horses in a field talking to each other? I think a lot of the video made me angry for uh, for uh, reasons unrelated to the conclusions, but uh, <laughs> but I won't get into that. Oh, now. Well, I, I like this. Uh, could be I like this example though. Basically, imagine two. It's the early twentieth century, and two horses are standing in a field and talking about how life keeps getting better and better. Whereas we used to have all this difficult work to do in the field and, you know, the horses are conversing and basically saying it seems like every day something comes along that's actually making our job easier. But the good part is, like, they're always going to need us. And our, our, we get to work in the, this cushier place in the city now, knowing that within a period of just a very few years, those horses would not have jobs. I like that analogy, though, for how we – how maybe I'm just repeating what you said. I think it's a pretty good analogy how we feel because we who consider ourselves to have some kind of – we see ourselves in this Venn diagram of having, oh, we understand technology other people don't understand. We got in front of this earlier than other people, et cetera, et cetera. So all these things that we think inoculate us against that, you know, there's almost no job that that's not going to be touched by that. No matter how special of a snowflake you think you are, like every job is going to be touched by that, including the horses. Unfortunately, this this conversation about money, the internet, business models, and automation um, – inevitably i think leads me to at least think about the it gets into political stuff because it leads into the the uh common sci-fi utopia where people don't have to work anymore because uh you know we solve the we we have a way to get cheap clean energy unlimited cheap clean energy did, did, they, did they uh solve the money problem John? right exactly but not, not not the money problem so much as the energy problem because cheap clean energy is always the cornerstone of of a uh uh, a utopian sci-fi because if you can solve cheap clean energy a lot of other dominoes start falling because a lot of the stuff that people have to do is like well we have to get some way to power all this stuff even if you got this stuff you need some way to power it you need power to manufacture less, things less war you over need land. power to desalinate water like it just you need power to you know whatever if you have a cheap clean energy doesn't pollute the planet nearly unlimited supply um that that knocks down a lot of dominoes uh, but eventually the utopia you get to is where people don't have to work anymore because all of our needs are met by the machines that we have built. And for the most part, a small number of people who choose to do so can improve those machines and make incremental progress. But at a certain point, you don't need to work. Um, and that leads you right up against all sorts of political philosophies that, you know, like for all the people who are against raising the minimum wage or think a uh, basic minimum income is the devil's work and is, you know, is totally against their entire philosophy of human existence those people will not get along in that type of utopia and in fact we will never reach that type of utopia if those people are there uh and setting aside the horses for a second it's pretty easy 
from my perspective, to look at all human progress as a series of events that's slowly leading us towards the place where people don't have to work all the time, right? We're so, you know, it used to be, you know, the things of the amount of time that, that look at the amount, so go back to animals, look at the amount of time animals, certain animals spend trying to find food. Like, for some animals, it is their main activity. Their main activity in life is seeking out food. And if they did not do that activity for the tremendous amount of time that they would do, they would starve to death and die. Our amount of time spent seeking out food is really, really small as a percentage of our time, right? That is what I would call progress. And same thing for all the things that we have for how long do we spend going to fetch water. We don't spend much time doing that anymore. It's in our house, right? Um, or creating fires, making fires. We tend not to do that that much except for as a voluntary leisure time activity because we have other ways of feeding ourselves. And you can pick anything and just extrapolate that out and eventually you get to the point where there, where humans are happy, healthy, have relationships, but don't need to do things for their own survival. It doesn't mean they're doing nothing and sitting around all day and becoming the blobs from uh, Wally or whatever, because there's plenty of other things we'd be doing to enrich our lives and, you know, all, all sorts of things that we would like to be doing. If, you know, right. making entertainment for each other and and being social animals and creating works of art and gardening and woodworking or any, any sort of enriching activity, uh, we will have more time for that and have less time that we have to spend on things that if we don't do them, we will be living in the street. Right. And most of us call that progress. But there is a whole, especially in the U.S., weird puritanical I don't know. what It's not Calvinist, is it? Anyway, that whatever philosophical and religious pro, pro, bent, like the 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 Protestant work, yeah, that that makes us uh, demonize. Anyway, I, I don't want to get into the political debate, but I feel like that outcome from uh, this automation thing and <laughs> you know making money on the internet in new different ways that is a conceivable outcome, but along the road to get there. There's lots of carnage, and I think, if most charitably speaking, that's kind of what the Humans Need Not Apply video is about. It's about uh, as automation comes online, it can be scary um, for a lot of people in those careers because it may not come in a way that allows you to gracefully exit your career. You may be caught by surprise by it. Um, but long term, I think that that is the direction things can and should go because I want to have more time to do the things that i want to do and less time to do things i don't want to do but that i have to do to keep myself alive and i think most people would agree with that it's just getting from here to there is difficult with a lot of people's uh thinking being uh barriers to getting there and also like practically speaking if you could snap your fingers today and have self-driving cars would you be willing to live with the economic carnage that would cause for people who make their living transportation especially because I think um, I'm trying to think of like what I want to peg this back to, but if I try and think about the before and after in really broad strokes, I could say that one before, if I'm trying to, you know what I mean by before and after photo? If I, one before, I have to say is like, let's just call it pre PayPal. You know, it didn't used to be very easy to send or receive money or its equivalent online. It was very difficult to do. You still needed a bank, you know, you needed checks or you needed transfers or you needed, you know, you needed an apparatus let alone what would be involved in sending somebody $5, $1, you know, automatic micropayments. So, I mean, when I, in my head, that's – the hugest part of the before and after is that there were these novel ways that, uh, you know, maybe starting with PayPal or whenever you want to peg it. 
But the the part about the, that I'm, I feel like I'm still always always still processing is the knock on effects of so many things. Like you know, those of us in the know in the early 2000s went, oh gosh, this greedy music industry. You know, of course people don't want to buy these terrible songs. I mean, they they have never really wanted to buy these terrible songs, and all they really wanted was the single anyway. And you know, and now you can get it through Kazaa or LimeWire or whatever this thing is going to be. But like, were people as prescient about knowing what would happen with, for example, journalism, and how much can we peg the changing economy? Like, which parts of the changing economy can we write down to the the troubles with getting journalism paid for? Is it just as simple as people just don't like buying the physical paper anymore? I got a feeling almost all of those things are way more complicated than they seem. And that in this in this one kind of halcyon vision, just having the ability to move around small amounts of money doesn't mean small amounts of mo- money will be moved around. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It, I, don't I, mean, get or, into I mean, another one is books. Like, okay, so so you could also just look at Amazon, pick it to Amazon. But all these all these companies that are seen as disruptors, um, now you just like, <clears throat> it seems like just after the first of the year, it is, as I say, the 16th as we record this, but Sears closing so many stores, all of these places. Like when we started pulling that thread of free Britney Spears MP3s, I mean, is that the same thread that we see being pulled out today as the sweater of Sears disappears? I mean, I, obviously they're somewhat related, but the knock-on effects of all of that, having a having fewer places that lots of the people, we can count on people to like get news from these same uh, sources. Like when that goes away, did that have an impact on how the election went? Like, I don't know. You got to wonder. So the Sears stuff, I always think of that as, you know, getting back to the two horses in the field. Two horses can't stop being horses, but Sears can change with the times in theory. Obviously, it's diff- It's more difficult for incumbents to to get on board with these things, but it is possible at least, whereas the horses can't stop being horses. And uh, to some <laughs> degree, like you're saying, like the lawyers, they can't stop being lawyers any more than the horses can stop being horses at a certain point. Because like you said, oh, how, how easy is it for that smart cable person to switch from being a lawyer to a doctor after they've been a lawyer for 20 years? Oh, just become a doctor. You're a smart person. That's not, you know, that's not happening either. Or anyone else in any career for a long period of time, it's silly to expect them to change on a dime and and flip things around but uh but it is possible for large corporations to do that because it's you know sears if sears is or any company that you know sometimes it's difficult to to find a new business model a lot of companies are going to go out of business trying to figure out how to navigate this new world but at least i feel like it is possible and you know i have less sympathy for a corporation than i do for the individual people who work for it right and hopefully that change happens at a slow enough pace that the people involved can find other things and you know because Sears, I mean, Sears has lasted a long time. Certainly lasted longer than Pets.com or whatever, right? Like, it's an institution, and if they're struggling now, institutions do fade. If a company goes under after a couple hundred years because of a change in business models, I don't I don't feel too bad for it. I feel like that's the natural life cycle of um, big corporations. Uh, but the, the news thing specifically, it's so hard not to just turn this into a political podcast when you talk about these things. But I've, I've thought about that one a little bit, and I think there's an interesting tech angle on that one. Uh, because again, from my, from my perspective as a child of the seventies, I don't have a limited view of history here and a little bit of the the past before I was born that I know about, you know, um, the fact that, that, uh, television, television and radio and the airwaves in this country were deemed a public resource and therefore controlled by the government and divvied up by the government with enough crap surrounding them. To be like, or at least not controlled, but maybe at least regulated, right? To, with enough yeah. enough stuff around them to say, someone, someone, some scientist or whatever, 
got through some policymaker's head enough that like, look, spectrum, there is not multiple spectrums. There is one electromagnetic spectrum. And here is the usable range of it for the technologies that are available. And the ability to use certain parts of the spectrum is valuable. And you can't let it be a free-for-all. Um, or they were able to convince somebody that like this this spectrum belongs to the country, not to any one company. So if you want to license a piece of spectrum to broadcast radio or television or whatever, you can do that, but there'll be some government involvement because this is a public resource, like public lands. The land belongs to us all, right? You know, even though you can own different pieces of it or whatever, there's some there's some oversight on it, right? And so that's where you get all all these archaic seeming regulations of like you have to dedicate some portion of your television news program to reporting the news um you have to have public service announcements all sorts of these you know what what a you know a pure capitalist would view as onerous government regulations demanding things that you do with these public resources you've been allocated um and it, in the troubles of journalism in the current age on the internet and stuff uh people discussing like well in the old days news was a loss leader uh and it was something that they you know some portion of it they had to do but the other portions they just did out of a social responsibility born from the idea that this was a public resource the internet although arguably a similar public resource having you know its origins as a darpa project uh didn't have those restrictions because bandwidth wasn't divvied up in terms of uh parts of an electromagnetic spectrum um and so there were no such requirements on websites to do any of the things that people who licensed uh parts of the spectrum from the fcc had to do like there was less government involvement and in many ways that has allowed the internet to flourish and gave us lots of business models but for journalism specifically it allows the rapid degeneration or the race to the bottom the race to the bottom from the app store the race to the bottom for uh for media that doesn't have to to deal with bandwidth same thing happened with print print race to the bottom really quickly because you weren't licensing paper spectrum anyone can print paper and so from the moment you could print paper you got what we would call rags you know gossip things and like whatever is the thing you know the national Enquirer, tabloids in modern parlance but all the way back through history of things i don't even remember the names of or never knew people figured out what hot buttons you know clickbait clickbait is not a new thing it just has a new name right. right um but journalism specifically i think in this country was protected from the race to the bottom by mostly unrelated technical issues and now freed of those in the age of the internet it removes uh some of the you know it removes some the 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 stick you know we have the carrot of like get people to read your stuff the the stick of saying if you want this bandwidth you have to do this thing and all of the associated sort of honor that comes with that like people start to think that it's actually part of their social responsibility to provide you know reasonable unbiased news uh when that disappears and everyone says just do what you have to do to make money it's no surprising that people pine for the days when there was when when the government was forcing uh companies to be ever so slightly more responsible in what they did um and i don't know if i'm just like you know coming in the side door to argue for more socialistic uh practices in in government but you know, I, you know, I come to the front door and say that for the most part, because I, I think that's that's it's inevitable result. It's, it comes part and parcel with the whole uh, the whole uh, progressive utopian future of how do we make progress as a, as a society uh, 
in what direction should things go? Do they go more towards people being left to their own devices, or are they more towards us collectively trying to raise the level for all of us? And I feel like that is an obvious direction as well, but the trick, as always, is getting from A to B, especially when people have hangups associated with every step along the way, to say that that is, you know, unfair or immoral or leads to doom in some as-yet-unspecified way. Mm-hmm. The race to the bottom part is so interesting because, you know, if you think about... I don't know if this is true for everybody that uses a what, what used to be called a smartphone. But I think if you ask most people for many for a variety number of years, a lot of people would say what they love about their smartphone is they probably li- really like the hardware, they like the breadth of, you know, functionality, but like especially with with Apple, that's the one I'm familiar with, it's amongst the super fans, it's the App Store that everybody's looked at as the most vibrant part of it. Like the the iPhone, it might've been the iPhone, you know, without it. I mean, it was for a while, obviously <laughs> without an app store, but the, the growth and the, just every time you turned around, you were seeing more and more of what this thing could do because of the app store. I think most people really agreed about that and like, would like still like it to like to hope that it can be that way today. And yet look at the state of the app store. And it's like, talk about chicken and the egg. Like, how do you, how do you decide you know, what's causing that race to the bottom apart from apparently more and more people are less willing to pay for apps or they're willing to pay less for apps or they're willing to pay less often for apps. I mean, I haven't seen any updated stats on this, but I imagine it's become pretty gruesome just talking to people who are developers. It sounds like that's gotten way worse rather than better. That's kind of like the the housing bubble. Like the bubbles like that, uh, I think are different than the progression. Like in other words, if it's if it's worthwhile for lots of people with money to make constant bets as long as like one out of every hundred pays off big, then you will get that race to the bottom in any market because you want your app to be free. Or it used to be cheap, but now free. You want it to be free or freemium. And everybody will be doing that. You can never compete with them by having an upfront paid price because they're all being funded by their, you know, all, all this money that's saying, go, 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 sell it for free, get a lot of users. Uh, and almost all of you will fail and go out of business, but I don't care because I'm out here with the money placing my bets, and if one of you hits and gets acquired, that pays off. The whole venture capital type thing. It was true with internet companies, and it's also true of apps, and what it does is depresses the market, doesn't eliminate, but depresses the market for self-funded, not always operating at a loss, I really want this specific business to win, uh, to Mm -hmm. to succeed type of things. Um, And I feel like that, that type of that's kind of a gold rush slash bubble because at a certain point the payout ratios either become known uh, known enough that uh everyone readjusts and, and doesn't throw as much money away or just slide until like it's no longer a good bet like that your big hits are not going to give you 100 to 1 returns and so you can't afford to lose out on those 99 and you have to start investing more reasonably um i mean it's, it's like investing in restaurants uh, One thing you become a little bit like you think of a, a scrapper like your pal underscore David Smith, where like he's real scrappy. Like he's he is he seems like an organism that is trying to rapidly evolve in a very unstable system. You know what I mean? Like he's always trying different things. That, and that's not a scalable system though, because that's like expecting someone who starts a restaurant. Why don't you start seven restaurants, all of different cuisines in different locations? Right. And like right, yeah, right. if you are able to start seven restaurants, fine. But most people are not David underscore Smith and can write like fifteen million. Like that is. That's that's like saying you should be a major league baseball player. Like most people are not that skill level, um, and so I don't know. Like he's he's a one he's a one man VC and he invests in himself. 
right? That's not, yeah. I don't think it's a scalable model, but like with, with restaurants, nobody is saying, I'm going to start a hundred restaurants and it'll all be worth it if one of them succeeds. It won't be. You'll lose money because the 99 that fail will wipe out any, you know, uh, unless the one that succeeds becomes McDonald's, and even then you have to live a pretty long time to get the payback from that. Restaurants well, don't if have you, that. If you, did the num- if you did the numbers on that and realized it might take six months or a year for the like, if you did a not a postmortem, but whatever you would call it, looking back on, okay, for my VC restaurant company, let's look at the ones that really took off, and I bet you would discover more often than is comfortable that the ones that did take off took more than six months or took more than a year, and they don't return the you a thousand and on on a thousand dollars for your dollar. You don't. You don't get a thousand right, times your yeah. initial investment. You don't. You're right. lucky if they just become profitable. Like they're not. They're not all going to become franchises, and even if they are. Whereas with the apps, the odds are still like you're trying to do like okay, well, uh, the one app that succeeds can give me you know ten thousand to one return on investment, and so that allows me to invest in those other ones. But other other businesses don't work like that. And right now, people still think apps do, so they're willing to uh, put as much money as they can into these applications. Um, and and also, it's kind of like casinos, where casinos are willing to put a lot of money into building casinos because people are a known quantity. So freemium games are very much like casinos and they're exploiting human nature to extract money in a fairly predictable way that could be viewed as evil from the outside, but that will depress your ability to have a really expensive restaurant. I don't know anything about Las Vegas, but I'm going to guess that your ability to have a really expensive restaurant in Las Vegas, you know, inside a casino is depressed by the fact that the casino, the restaurants that are associated with the casino that are inside there are you know subsidized by the casino it's difficult to compete with that because they're subsidized by everyone's gambling losses whereas if you're not subsidized by everyone else's gambling losses you're gonna have a harder time right 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 although again i'm revealing that i know nothing about las vegas and for all i know there are super expensive restaurants sitting right inside the casino i have no idea yeah but i mean like that that actually is to me that does not hurt the example i think what you're describing is true i mean like they always say like your old pal roy rogers talking about how they're not making any new land you know location 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 but they're, they're also it's, – it's also hard to know when something novel does come along or something that's potentially, as they say, disruptive. It, it can take a real long time, on the one hand, to notice that something is happening. On the, on the second – not other hand, but on the second point, you know, what it is that is happening. And then I, it can take a very, very long time to understand why it's happening. You know, it's, a, it's not, not unlike the tip of the iceberg, as they say. So, I mean, like, you know – it's it, like any of this futurism or thinking about what comes next. It, it's so difficult because, as we've said before, at least in my opinion, you know, we tend to focus on one or possibly two points, the things that we are interested in. You know, what is it going to take to get more people to turn out for the vote? Well, what if you end up getting more people who to turn out for the vote who like absolutely disagree with you? Is that still a success? Well, we should talk about that. You know what I mean? It's whenever you try and bring in these two factors, uh, you know, that's that's I think where it gets really confusing. But, you know, I, I feel like, you know, like we have a, a mutual friend who had one of the, I think, one of the standout early iPhone apps for which he charged $10. I very happily paid $10 for an app on the day that I, you know, was able to buy an app on my phone. And that rapidly went down over time. And eventually he sold the, sold the app to somebody else because it, you know, wasn't what he wanted to be doing anymore. But I guess... I guess, I don't know. I don't know. I guess I'm just, I'm trying to figure out, like, what comes next. Like, like at that time, I mean, it wasn't even that long. I, I, I joked last week about how I think youth is the aberration. It's not old age that's aberrant, it's youth. Uh, the fact that you're only really young for a little while. Well, the truth is that not that that far into the new app economy on iOS, 
I mean, do you remember when you first started seeing lots of ads in apps for other apps? I mean, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, when I know first what you're saying, started, but I'm, I'm going to flip it to the website one. When back in the .com days where all you would see on .com websites was ads for other .com websites, like that whole cycle of money as VC money just went into the swirling toilet bowl around and around, just all companies advertising other companies' services to each other. We, our, our company absolutely did that. But they, they absolutely basically said, so we were a company that mm, was kind of felt like a consumer play, but we're trying to have it be a, a play for uh, – real estate agents. And of course, we had relationships with like mortgage companies. And I, it's my understanding in retrospect, I don't want to get too deep on this. It's my understanding that it was not unusual at all for them to say, okay, we each just scored $120,000 in revenue this month based on this quid pro quo of like, we're going to give you $120,000 worth of promotion on our site in exchange for same from you. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Or even in the, the tech sphere, it's even more like, there was so much VC money flowing in that you would sell like your enterprise software content management system. You would you had venture capital coming in for you to hire people to write that. And then you would sell that to the people in the next building over who are trying to start an e-commerce website that has some component that needs the CMS. And they would buy it with the VC money that they're getting. And it would oh, just okay. go around in this big circle where no one had an actual way to make money except by... Getting some, they would take their VC money and use it to make something that they would then use to buy something that was made with other people's VC money. Like that was the dot com bubble, basically. Before you know, someone in that circle has to have a way to make money from other people. Otherwise, all your all it is is sophisticated systems for extracting money from VCs. That's a shell game, and yeah. get, and it, it all lands underneath one of them at the end. Like it's more like musical chairs, where the music stops. Only there's like one chair and like seven hundred companies, and the music stopped, and you know like. <laughs> Five companies were left. Oh, I had to leave to come record with you, but we were right at the spot in an episode of a series of unfortunate events when uh, <laughs> the children, it's such a good show, and the children have been compelled to work in a sawmill. <laughs> they find out that everyone that works there is paid in coupons, <laughs> and they have all these things they want to buy, but all they have is coupons for discounts on things that they don't have the money to buy. Yeah. Or like they it's a buy to the company store at great expense and you give the money back to it together. But there, there are many unhealthy cycles for money. Uh, the, the app store economy, I don't think it was so much infected by VC, but it was definitely, I mean, in many ways, it's it's priced accurately in that in the beginning, few people could write apps. Yeah, but our, our friend who had that $10 app got pushed out and I'm pushed out or chose to leave, I think because of a lot of incoming like gold rush style money of saying like, hey, look. This read it later market is going to be huge. Let's let's invest in this crazy outlier over here, and let's put it into this existing one over over there. And I think that became untenable because it was it, it disrupted the. Yeah, it's uh, like a micro bubble around a thing that that some people get a sniff like, oh, this could be the next big thing, and you know, right, and right. so that that will shove you out of everything. But but overall, like I mean, we brought this so much uh, up a lot of, a lot of times on uh, on ATP, but like at a certain point. Uh, if there are a lot of people, if what you do is fun and a lot of people are willing to do it for free, that depresses your wages. And people get angry about that sometimes. Um, but app development, whether it's fun or whether people are doing it because they think they might get rich later or for whatever reason, if a bunch of students are willing to do what you're doing for free, that can't help but depress the amount of money that you're allowed to charge for your thing. And that's a bummer, but scolding people to not write apps in their spare time when they're students is probably not the best way for you to figure out how to uh, continue to be successful in your career, right? In the same in the same way, when the VC money comes into your read it later market, uh, you writing angry blog posts about VC money 
is a less useful, uh, uh, you know, way to spend your time than figuring out someone to sell your thing to while, while you still can. But like one man's price fixing is another man's living wage. Like for, from one point of view, like if you're the kind of person that puts out an app that what, what was a good number for a long for like not a long time, but for some time, two ninety nine or like one ninety nine for at least a few years was an amount of money that you could charge for some apps that wasn't the premium price that maybe you went to market with a few years earlier. But you know, we have pals who've made OK Bank charging a dollar ninety nine or two ninety nine for an app. My understanding today is that that's that's not tenable. You couldn't you couldn't get with everybody and say, look, from now on, we're going to charge at least a dollar ninety nine for every game because there's no, there's just no way to do. It. There's no way to unionize the app store. Yeah, well, the, the free models come and, and wipe away everything pretty pretty well because the, the free to play things both by uh, playing on people the same thing to get people to get play money at casinos, but also just on you know lower barriers to entry and you know everyone is more satisfied by that model. So if you don't have something that fits into that model you're going to be swept away by things that do fit in. Like, you know, everyone wants everything for free. People aren't bothered as much by ads as you thought. If you can't make enough money off ads because your volume's so low, some big player that can will come in. Like, it's it's difficult. I mean, the good thing about app development is it's a broad enough market that even if you're a little section of it, like, you know, you don't have to be uh, David underscore Smith and be, to be able to write apps in 17 <laughs> Underscore David Smith. <laughs> underscore David Smith. To, to be able to write apps in 15 different genres, but software development skills are reasonably transferable, and you can probably find some other way to do it. Maybe you can't be an independent app developer anymore, but at the very least, you can get a job at some company that's writing software, which may not be agreeable to you, but at least you have more of a lifeboat than people whose manufacturing jobs are automated away, you know, because you can still be a programmer. You Programming is such a broad thing, and there are so right. many companies that still want programmers, just that maybe you can't be an indie programmer who writes this kind of app so you can figure out how to navigate out of that. So I'd, I feel less bad about that situation, but it is it is the, the, the same type of phenomenon. Uh, we're running long, but uh, I got a weird question for you. I want you to put on your uh, futurist hat. I'm sure you have one right nearby. Um, you can answer this however you want, but in thinking about like uh, what you see happening or what you wish you would see happening, like what's, what's something that you think is, is, what's an interesting sort of thing that people might start paying money for on the internet that they're not currently paying money for on the internet. Do you, do you see any change? What's an area where a, some, some kind of distribution, interest, attention, land grab, is there anything coming in the next three to five years that you think would be a surprising thing that might come along that people end up spending a little bit of money on that they don't right now? I think people would be willing to spend a small amount of money on a recurring basis for a for a program to do something for them, right? So, like all these different an, an application or service, all these no, all these like machine learning things, right? Uh -huh. um, if someone comes up with a reasonable algorithm, and we, it's been many runs of this business model, and people have shown they're willing to pay for it as it is, but like they're so primitive now. But like if something could figure out, um, kind of like Nuzzle does by scraping your social feeds or whatever give mm -hmm. you a bunch of URLs that you're going to be interested in or uh, managing your calendar for you by scraping through your email. Like these are all existing things that like, you know, Google does with Gmail and so on and so forth. But as we get more into the machine learning realm, if someone comes up with a branded kind of machine learning assistant thing that is actually has utility, like uh, what I'm basically thinking for is computer replacements for a personal assistant to keep, get your crap together. Yeah, for for all for all range of things, like like how do you know when it's time to consider moving? 
like are there multivariate factors about you know your career and your life where uh, that's an extreme example but there's got to be examples of things that go beyond stock trading or like who has the cheapest gas there's oh. got to be stuff where that's going to become extremely I'm useful just reminding you to get groceries making sure you remember to pick up your kids and keep the schedule straight and, and noticing potential future conflicts like things like that that are currently free features of many other things like if you can pass some threshold of utility you can charge people a dollar a month for it and because it's a program if you charge people a dollar a month uh you don't you, there's no incremental costs like two people three you know you have to pay for hardware but like it's it scales very well much more so than a human assistant's doing the same thing because most people probably won't be able to pay a human assistant any kind of reasonable wage to do that stuff but if you can get a computer assistant to do that for you and it's good enough that you can charge any money at all for it um then that's one possible avenue i may be wrong about that one because the other alternative obviously is what everyone is doing up to this point which is give everyone those features for free and capture their eyeballs and sell ads and, the, and information and tracking about them so it could be that yeah. as an undefeatable model but if you could if you could jump it up if you could say i i'm going to go 20 years into the future grab their ai assistant bring it back to today you could charge money for it so there may be as there was in the app store a period of time in which you can charge people for that on a monthly basis. And who knows, that could spin out into a thing that becomes something that we all just take for granted. We all pay for video streaming services now. Who would have thought years ago that we would do that? Would it Mm -hmm. all just be free with ads in it? People figured out how to charge us a reasonable fee for that because we were already paying for cable TV. Cable sort of laid the groundwork for the idea of paying a monthly fee to see video content. I think it is possible for paying a monthly fee for some artificial intelligent thing to help you with your life could i mean it'll certainly have value in the beginning and it could escape the free death spiral by maybe grandfathering in on something else that we're used to like like video streaming did or otherwise being so valuable um and so reasonably priced like a dollar a month that it becomes a thing that we just all pay for and don't think about in the same way that we all pay for like video streaming services or cable tv today or cell phone Hmm. service or crying out loud we all pay for that and you know like that's not that's not free (sighs) with ads right I can't believe I just saw, I saw something in passing earlier today that uh, we're near the 10th anniversary of Netflix streaming, which seems unbelievable to me. Um, it was when it first started. I don't know if did you did you do the streaming pretty early on? It was pretty bad. It was I mean, like what they had on there was bad. I, I, I don't know if this was their CEO, Reed Hastings or whatever. Um, yeah, I, I, like a gives me a weird vibe. But anyway, I think I think this was him. He had one of what must have been the most satisfying like long-term career defining i'm so smart great feeling of accomplishment quotes and i think it was like a couple years ago like after the advent of netflix streaming i don't remember when that was you said it was 10th anniversary of netflix but when was streaming like five oh, years ago I, that's what i, I mean the netflix netflix oh, streaming has it been 10 years service. of streaming let me double check. Yeah, I think that's uh, right. Well, anyway, his quote was when he was making the press rounds for, I think, the advent of streaming or maybe like the first results of streaming or some numbers related to streaming. He said, there was a reason we didn't call the company DVDs by mail. <laughs> because remember, Netflix, when I signed up for it, what Netflix was was a way for people to send you a bunch of shiny optical discs in little paper envelopes. 
That's what Netflix was. Netflix was yeah. discs came in the mail and you watch them and you put them back into the envelopes and you send them out. And the company and you pay, was called, you paid based on you paid strictly based on how many DVDs you could have in circulation at a given time. Right, and it was called Netflix. And you're like, oh, I see how it's net because they have a website, and the website is where you sign up and pick what movies you want. So it kind of made right. sense. Oh, Netflix! I go on my web browser and I pick which flicks I want to see, and they come to me in the mail. Right, but the company, in the same way that Uber's long-term plan is to get rid of these pesky drivers, you know, totally out in the open. Netflix was. Pr- presumably from the very beginning all about like we have to do this now but you know our our business that we're in is selling you entertainment using the internet we're not tied to this whole disc thing we're not you know that do you believe that do you really believe that i totally believe that and i totally believe that's why they didn't name the company dvds by mail or some pun that has to do with discs going in the mail that they wanted to sell you video and the discs were just a necessary evil until they weren't anymore in the same way that Uber wants to sell you transportation and these drivers are a necessary evil until they don't have to have them anymore. I think Uber is going to be waiting a little bit longer than Netflix did. Um, but boy, like, because there's going to be a whole generation of kids who think Netflix is how I get video on the internet. And if you, if you try to tell them, actually, when Netflix first started, they would send you a piece of plastic in the mail and you'd watch it and send it back to them and be like, get out of here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, no, that's, that's why was it called Netflix then? If you return them really fast, you can watch like five movies a month. <laughs> yep, exactly. I still love there's a, I don't have any model for this or how this would work, but like, I feel like there's still, I th- there's a lot of grenades rolling around with how things get monetized via ads, um, obviously. And there's still a lot of concern, legitimate concern about like what we're doing in terms of what we give away in order to get free content. And like, I still feel like there's room for that to evolve somewhere somehow and i have to say there's this crazy fantasy in the back of my mind like you think of like who would be the last company in the world to want to really get in front of the changing landscape of ads and maybe find a way to keep your privacy safe and maybe make a little money i always wonder if it's going to be google i mean we've we've got it in our heads at this point that google is the company that reinvented online advertising and in some ways that was very true but i don't think that that and, and, then, and then, of course, they got the, the, the beef for, like, uh, being that that's the only way they have to make money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's still some part of my brain that wonders if they're going to be the ones who figure out how to re-re-revolutionize this through some way of being able to protect you and your data and to exercise some of the things that they have used to make themselves basically into the anti-Facebook. I know that sounds nuts, but, like, there's nobody who's more uniquely suited to taking that up. It's just, uh, you know, I don't think Apple, well, Apple's not even on the map for that kind of stuff. But I don't know. I mean, somewhere between an antivirus solution, an insurance policy, and online advertising. Is there some more canny way to figure out how people get protected and money gets made? Because there's nobody who would be better at it than Google. I think Facebook and Google are both in a position to do this. Um, but Google probably has the expertise. I don't know if either one of them will. But what I'm thinking of is, you know, what, what's the next step? And advertising what what they would all like to do if you let them do it would be to make their advertising uh to make it better right that's, that's what they say they're always trying to do but imagine you know the the ideal case of, imagine if they a, actually meant it of an advertising system that only shows you know uh shows your ads i don't even want to call them ads but always present only presents people with the uh with the opportunity to buy something worth like a you know an advertisement for a place where they you know a call to action exactly when they wanted that thing Mm -hmm. right that's what they're always trying to go for 
You know, this is the stupid story that everyone would tell each other to get VC money in the 90s. What if you're walking down the street and you want a coffee and bloop pops up on your phone, uh, the coffee shop that's having a sale right now, like just in time, exactly at the moment, 100% relevant, so good that the person getting it actually considers it a service. And that you don't show people ads for things they're not currently interested in or not interested in at this moment or they're doing something different or whatever, like the the opposite of the shotgun approach. And every company that's advertising is trying to better target. That's why they collect all this information, because they want to show you the advertisements in a way that they're more effective. They, you know, they don't want to show people ads that aren't relevant to them, that aren't going to make them do anything, unless it's brand advertising. But even that can be targeted in some way to like, you know, to affect the people at the right moment in the right time, right? So the best advertising is less advertising at just the right moment. And the problem is humans don't even know what just the right moment is. And machines are so far from that. And we're just, we're, we're totally in the shotgun age. But if a company like Google could do enough machine learning to say decrease the volume of advertisements by like a million x but have the ones that <laughs> remain be 10 million times more effective right right then that's a win for everybody except for people who don't want their information gathered because there's only to do that they would have to have tons of information on you so they would still gather well, the that, information that's where, that's where my part comes into it is because i mean you know what if what if the twist for the what we think of as the third act of this particular play you know what if what if google is not I don't know. This sounds really naive. I don't. I don't have a lot of trust in Facebook and and what they do. I just. I don't use it. I don't trust it. I don't see how they succeed without doing things that I consider pretty odious. I do wonder if Google could though, and they've got the firepower and the know how to do some very interesting things. Will we get to a point where Google sees the shape of that curve and says, "Hey, look, here's how much growth we can get out of this. It's not going to be a lot, but here's what we can get. But like, here's this other, you know, unexplored, unexploited opportunity where like, maybe people will pay for this kind of thing, whether that's AI or, you know, better ads. I don't know. I, 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 I'm not saying I'm hopeful, but I think if anybody could do it, it's them. Yeah. I see it like, that's like the alternate model of like, you know, we, we see advertising, we see the end of the road in advertising. So let's start selling artificial intelligent assistance. But like on the advertising front, like I see to, to rebend that curve to say like, you know, it's happening everywhere. That how much is how much is a view worth? How much is a click worth? Like having that being driven down because there's just so much inventory. Like to reverse mm-hmm. that to say we're going to sell far, 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 far fewer ads at astronomically higher prices because we've figured out how to make the effectiveness of those ads so much higher. Like that's the way you can rebend that curve because mm-hmm. because that's a virtuous cycle as far as regular people and advertisers are concerned. Advertisers would love to 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 pay you instead of you know huge amounts of money for millions of ads that like they just want to tell you this the same amount of money for one ad and then customers are happy because they just got the one ad and google's happy because they could sell that one ad for a higher price and like you know they to figuring out that business model the only people who aren't happy are people who 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 care about their privacy because to do that presumably google would have to collect even more information about you but the second model is you know like finding a different business model finding cannibalizing yourself seeing the end of the road in advertising and finding an escape uh, because you realize if you don't find an escape, someone else could do something that obsoletes your advertising. And having it be artificial assistance, like, the problem with that is if you can, uh, it depends on how you do your research, but if you're researching in that area, it's very easy for that research to fall into the how can we make our ads more effective realm instead of the how can I make a, a personal assistant. And if you do make a good personal assistant, surely that personal yeah. assistant would have enough information to make better targeted ads about you. Well, it's, so. it's, a, it's another version of the faster horse in some ways. We're like, if this is, if this is the only way that we 
know of to do this, that's where the resources all have to go. It's going to require something to to really, really change for that to be any different. Just to maintain. And like uh, Facebook, prob- you know, they, they're along the same path, but I think they're probably less inclined to both pursue new avenues and also to, like, they have such volume that, like, why would we ever try to increase the unit price of our inventory, the inventory being people or whatever, mm-hmm. or views or whatever? Like, because we just have so much of it. We make it up in volume, like... It's not. We don't want to switch the model where we decrease our volumes by a million x and increase our prices by two million x because that's too much of a radical change. We'd rather increase our price by point zero 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 one percent because that will net us another billion dollars, right? So they're looking for the incremental. They're not looking for the big inversion. But Google, you know, potentially because they've been willing to try weird things like this, could try to change the value proposition to instead of having lots and lots and lots of very cheap ads have very few super valuable ads through the magic of you know knowing exactly what people want when they want it at the exact moment you see where um gray was saying you know his video rule rules for rulers and and they're trying to sell uh <laughs> youtube was pushing for people to buy rulers like little phys- phys- physical rulers <laughs> that's possibly uh the best the best that little algorithm can do you know <laughs> Semantics are hard. Language is hard. English especially. They can't sell you a duchy or a barony or anything. I mean, it's got rules and ruler in the title. Like the poor algorithm. (laughs) 